lying in the tall grass. Wish I had a pilot and a podcast. Wish I had a strong donkey that can haul ass and travel with portable speakers playing bars skags. I wish I had a million dollars. I wish I had a million albums. I wish I had a million problems. That way I couldn't pinpoint all one million outcomes. I wish I found a genie lamp. I wish them girls gave me them sugar like Beanie Man. Yeah. I wish I was a comedian. Late night sitcom syndicated on TV land. I wish this well had water in it. These kids are stealing all my pennies. Focused on my wealth. You can help me wish, but I would rather wish the help is like, it's like. I wish, I wish, that every time we dive in, it feels just like this. I wish, I wish, that every time we do it, it feels just like this. I wish, I wish, that every time we love in, it feels just like this. It feels just like this. It feels I wish I had a time machine. Wish I had a better rhyming speed. Wish that I could speak to giants after climbing up a green top that grew from my lima bean. I wish that I could spread my wings. Nah. I wish that I had seven limbs. Yeah. That way I'd hold on to everything and laugh when I hear people wishing for the better things. I wish I spoke fluent Spanish. Dímelo, dímelo. At least I kind of understand it. <laughs> wish that I could throw the deuce like Gambit and get so large I could play pool with the planets. Yeah. I wish I was an astronaut. I wish I knew more classic rock. <laughs> Focused on myself. You can help me Hello, Cats and Kittens, and welcome to episode 89 of The Debrief. I am your host, Brianna Joy Gray, and today we are talking about the labor potential of the current strike moment in the United States of America. I had on two guests. We had Lauren Gurley, a labor reporter from The Washington Post. Uh, who has been doing some pretty good coverage of the ongoing uh, pending potential rail worker strike. And, sorry, just one second. Having a little bit of a technical issue that I'm going to resolve shortly. Sorry, we had so we had Lauren Gurley, as I said, uh, from the Washington Post, and we had Ross Gruders, who is a real worker who was able to give some really important perspective that has been lacking in the media. Shout out to uh, Max Alvarez and folks uh, like Jordan Cheriton, who have always uh, done a really great job privileging the voices of workers in these kinds of moments. But I was so glad to be connected with Ross. After we interviewed a colleague of his on the Hill last week, so I hope you enjoyed that perspective and were able to get some questions answered that I have been struggling to find in most of the labor coverage I've been reading. So let's get to it. Andrew, you're up first. Unmute yourself and let us know what's on your mind. I'm just shocked I got first in line. I thought that was actually physically impossible on the show anymore. <laughs> well, I'm glad you're here, Andrew. Yeah, I, I'm glad you've been doing all these segments on the rail strike and labor generally. I've been digging the uh, old-timey, uh, I guess, what are they, IWW uh, choirs that are singing those. Um, that's great at the end of those shows. Mm, yes, yes. Shout out to uh, producer Armand for his music choices. I've been increasingly just taking a back seat in that realm, in part because he does such a good job making musical choices. Nice. Did he make the musical choice for your intro for the call-in, or, or is that No, yours? this, this uh, artist, uh, Quarterwater, is a uh, ex-boyfriend's brother. <laughs> oh, okay. 
Okay. Uh, that's how I came across it. And I, I just really liked it. And yeah, it, he's not like especially big or anything, but I, I took the song and I sped it up a little bit. It's a little slower if you Google it and listen to it on YouTube. But yeah, it's, I think it's a great track. I'm glad you guys like it too. Yeah. I, I just had a, uh, a suggestion that I don't know if you're already doing something like this, but, um, you know, you've brought up the General Strike Summit. You just went and talked with uh, RBN on their show and had them on uh, The Hill, which was really great to see recently. But I'm curious um, if you already have or if you would reach out to, of course, RBN, but also like uh, Max Alvarez, Jordan Cheriton, maybe even Crystal and Breaking Points people and see how big of a sort of labor General Strike Summit we could get going, like a part two. Because um, like... Just pointing people to where to pitch into strike funds, which ones are actually going to go to the strike fund instead of, you know, potentially are there unions that, although although the the guy Gruders today, he did say that um, likely, or was it the reporter, I can't remember which one, they said likely all the unions would strike if one or two of even the smaller ones decide to uh, strike on the terms of the contract. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know, just for people to to understand, like, what are the uh, the asks, who, how can you support the strike funds, what type of stuff could we be putting on, like, bus stops and uh, telephone poles and whatnot to just tell people, like, hey, um, you know, you're going to ultimately be better off if you support this, even if uh, you're being told that your your status as a consumer is in opposition to these striking workers. Is this already going on, or what do you think? I think that's a great idea. I I think that, you know, one, because of the moment that we're in, it's obviously uh, appropriate. But two, you know, something like the General Strike Summit should be happening on a semi-regular basis, if not, you know, an annual basis or biannual basis. So I I think that's a great idea. And given that there seems to be more of an appetite for these kinds of discussions, I'd love to see if we can even ratchet up what the great folks over at RBN were able to do last time and get even more and more – content creators with bigger uh, platforms involved and to see if they would be willing to co-host it on their platforms and do things like what um, Crystal Ball was uh, so gracious in doing and hosting that uh, panel for Julian Assange and things like that in her studio. So I think that's, I think it's a great idea. I made a note of it in my dedicated debrief Slack channel <laughs> to remind awesome. myself to follow up later. Thank you, Andrew. Yeah. Yeah. Can I give one more uh, thought and then I'll pop off of here? Yeah, of course. Um, I'm sure you're probably somewhat familiar with Leonard Peltier, um, but there's going to be pretty soon. I don't know. It was supposed to happen uh, about a week ago, um, but I, but I, I'm not sure if it was delayed or if it's just going on from a different location. But there's a a march of people from a number of different tribes and the Wounded Knee mm-hmm. uh, community um, marching to D.C. and huh. they're trying to get clemency for Leonard Peltier, um, Carol Gokey who's the um she's been the chair of the committee to defend i think i can't remember i never remember what their name acronym spelled out but it's like the committee to defend leonard peltier uh super nice lady and well what was um, her name again i'm sorry uh i think it's carol gokey g-o-k-e-e um let me just double check that really quick and then i'll i'll dm you the link to their website because they got like contact information and stuff there Okay, perfect. I'm seeing this uh, an article from September 1st about this. So thank you for that flag as well. Definitely follow up with that. 
Right on. See, well, maybe, appreciate maybe we your work. We can do a segment on Rising even. I was in Philadelphia today and um, at this place. I don't know if you guys, any of you are familiar with Philly, but at like a food hall called uh, um, the Reading Food Hall or something like that. And uh, there was a Rising listener uh, from the, the guy I bought a uh, pretzel from <laughs> was a Rising listener. It's always nice to see people oh, out nice. in the wild. And it's a good reminder that a lot of people are watching that platform. It is useful to talk about these kinds of issues on that platform. So maybe that would be a good bet as well. Well, you've been making great use of the of the rising platform, uh, so I hope you stick around there as long as you can stand it. But appreciate <laughs> everything you, you do. Thank you. Thanks for calling in. I appreciate you. Mm-hmm. Keep the faith. All right, Clifford, unmute yourself and let us know what's on your mind tonight. Hey, Bree, can you hear me? Loud and clear, Clifford. Long time no chat. How have you been? I've been good. Thanks for asking. How have you been? pretty well i'm perky after a weekend away from the city and i'm slowly realizing (laughs) all of the things that have piled up while i've been gone but i'm gonna live i'm gonna live in this joyful moment what's on your mind uh substantively tonight clifford oh um uh, a bunch of things i just wanted to start off thanking you so much for um for the last two episodes like i really anytime it turns away from electoralism to something like this it's like so great and i've I've really enjoyed like having a historical episode like i hope maybe like if you keep something of that thread going i think that would be really helpful like maybe like a history of revolutionary action like even contemporary examples you know but like mm-hmm. south america and mm-hmm. all that stuff i think that'd be really cool like as you've like examined all this stuff like i hear sometimes your frustration about like these two years of like analysis of things and just coming to the same dead ends with like how corrupt our systems are and then so maybe something like that you know maybe that's where that is going and i really loved uh on rising uh all the rbn stuff like the crossover is really cool like you going over there and and them going to rising it's really it's really awesome to see well i'm glad you like that because thursday's episode will feature three rbners <laughs> Oh, awesome. Is yeah. that Feeney? No, it's not a Feeney. You know, she's been on the show twice before. It is yeah, three different R- R- RBNers. I won't say anything more because I want it to be a little bit of a surprise. You know, I like to spoil the show a little bit on uh, on the debrief for the debrief listeners. But I think you'll I think you'll enjoy it. It's a, it's a good, spicy, rigorous episode. They, they really, they really, they, they, they are unvarnished and they will hold me to account in a way that I really appreciate. So I think you'll enjoy the episode. I do love that. And I really, I really appreciate that you open yourself up to that kind of stuff because I, I like where you go from there. And also it's just kind of a rare thing. Um, so that's great. Um, I, uh, when you were on RBN, RBN recently, uh, they said something that I thought was really perfect as far as like, I don't think it was when you were physically like, or, you know, virtually in the room, but um, they said something about your ability to vet revolutionary ideas and stuff. And I think that's like a really mm-hmm. good condensed way of saying like what I really appreciate about your channel and how you mediate content and all that stuff is just that kind of patient vetting of ideas with a really analytical lens in like a very practical way. Like, like I've been meaning to call in and just ask you as far as like, the spaces that you inhabit, like rising and stuff like that. I wonder, do you feel like a pressure to, to um, kind of like give 
credence only to electoral like um, strategies, just because if you were to be honest and say like, truthfully, I don't think any election in our lifetime will have any difference than it has since, you know, Reagan, and that the only way we're going to stave off any sort of disaster, get justice for any sort of losses that we've all experienced in our lives is to do something radically outside the norm. But do you feel like if you spoke like that in the spaces you inhabit, you would kind of lose, um, I don't know what the word is, but you know, like not respect, but like weight behind your voice. You know, it's interesting as, as much as the rising audience, I think does lean more conservative. I don't think that they are opposed to that kind of messaging. I don't think that they react negatively to it, at least for, for, for two reasons. One reason is that, you know, they, they see me as a Democrat and they see my critiques as uh, of the democratic party as me being like, red pilled and like coming over their direction. So they, they will interpret anything that I say about divesting from uh, electoral politics as me saying uh Democrat should lose and Republicans should win. So that's, that's one reason why they don't mind me saying something <laughs> wow. like that. Another, another reason is that I think that generally speaking, they, 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 they are similarly situated as outsiders, even if they do lean more right or more right on cultural issues. And they have similar frustrations with the Republican establishment. And there is some sincere, genuine empathy about frustrations with the party. Now, if the question is whether or not, you know, rising as a platform has an issue with folks being anti-electoralism, I also don't think that that's necessarily the case, although you don't really know until you test a boundary. I have done radars about how we need to dim exit, and there's been no issue with that whatsoever. But, you know, you never know what the line is uh, until you cross it, and I do think that there are some lines that exist there, as with almost any platform. Yeah. Um, I, I, yeah, there seems to be almost more of an imagination and an appetite for some of the more radical maneuvers on the right. Surprisingly, um, just like obviously January 6th is like a huge example, but obviously not with the goal that I'm sure a lot of people would have in mind. But um, I was just wondering like um, if I could ask you one more thing, um, mm. the, the, uh, if you were to kind of, I, I think someone brought up something similar, like with a Star Trek sort of utopia view of the future. But if you were to see like, I want to say like a good future, but I even then I'm kind of so negative nowadays, like I but just like the least bad future, uh, like path that we could go down. What what would you see like as your role in it? Like, I'll be honest, I feel like it there's no way that it will have anything to do with like voting even in the green party's sense or which i always vote green but like i really do think if anything will happen in a timeline that will help anyone it's going to be some sort of revolutionary act or some sort of disruption it's going to be about holding the one percent and basically costing the one percent money a huge amount of money and then they'll you know in order to get the tap flowing again for their money they'll make huge acquiescence to our demands or whatever mm -hmm. you know so like it, but what would you see yourself like with the content that you can mediate on rising and this excellent channel and all the stuff that you do which i'm a huge fan of what would you see yourself as like pushing us in that direction what what role would you see yourself doing i mean i, I really do like doing comms i i really do think that it's an underappreciated aspect of politics and 
including you know non-electoral politics of, of movement strategy and change. So if possible, I'd like to stay in this role. I enjoy on a personal level analytical work more than, if I'm going to be completely honest, any kind of um, uh, like practical planning and administrative work. That's part of why I was not the world's greatest lawyer. <laughs> um, so to the extent that I can stay in a space where I can um, perform what I think of as a kind of translation service, uh, and as you put it, or the, the folks over at RBN put it, vetting ideas in good faith as they come down the transom and helping people who are much better at implementation strategize over what exactly we should impl implement and then help the broader public understand why we're pursuing whatever strategy we're pursuing. I, I'd love it to be able to, to keep doing that. But if things change and, you know, folks have to pivot, then, you know, we'll do what we got to do. We'll do, we'll go where we're useful. I think you're perfect at that. Even with the debt strike people, I just felt like you were good at, I feel like you would be so great at even pushing those people to be like, you really think like when you were saying like, like this is a protest happening right here. If we just stood a few more feet in the street, do you think that would be more effective by any chance? You know, I think just like your way of looking at things is really helpful. So thanks a bunch um, for taking my call. Um, I, I think I said this before, but if uh, some of Extinction Rebellion and um, and this channel Second Thought that has like over a million uh, subscribers on YouTube, both of them are in your follows, I think, on Twitter, uh, if that's like the parameters you need to invite people. So, um, uh, you know, I just uh, both those Extinction Rebellion and Second Thought, I think they would be great collaborations for your channel but thank you for giving me so much time have a great thank you. evening thank you for the reminder those are both good suggestions thank you thank you clifford bye all right keep the faith jonathan how are you let us know what's on your mind i'm very well thank you i have to do a throwback to a couple episodes ago sure with about the student loan thing and you can tell me if somebody made this point already but i feel like it there's a couple different things that a couple different angles that weren't being out there. And one was just that the efficiency of stimulus dollars, dollar for dollar, the whole premise of Pell Grants and financial quote unquote aid in general is that you're creating people who are going to be better poised to create more value per dollar put out in the world. It can kind of be the same thing that uses an argument against UBI, whereas it's like the indiscriminateness is used as kind of a, boon like oh it's going to be so fair because it's indiscriminate but to discriminate in a positive i mean in a useful way is to be like we need to put this where it's going to do the most good and create the most value per dollar put in otherwise it's going to be inflationary but if who's better poised to create more value than the most educated that's the entire point of educating people and spending money on educating people and maybe you think that doesn't work or it's all bullshit, and that's fine but consider what you're saying if you think that i'm wrong if you think that I'm wrong, then what you're saying is that our education in America, yours and mine, is not just overpriced, but it's actually worthless. And if that's the case, then under the auspices of the Federal Trade Commission and the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, we should be entitled to recompense for being sold a faulty product. So this is a dichotomy where it's either it should be forgiven or it should be forgiven. In either case, one of those has to be true, <laughs> but it's the same outcome. 
as an old Korean man, I used to say, I used to know once said, the choice is none, meaning it's this, there's no choice to make here. You should just do it. So the first point there was that it's kind of a false dichotomy. And the second point is something like, well, let's, well, sorry, let's just stay uh, with that. I mean, is this a part of the same idea or, uh, you know, a second, a whole other second point? Because I'd love to stay with that for a second before I yeah, forget no, go, yeah, what, go what ahead. you said. So I think part of the issue is, you know, there's a, there's a real argument, frankly, something that I believe deeply, which is the value of an education isn't just uh, about how much it can create some monetizable value in the public sphere or some personal value in terms of someone's income. And unfortunately, when we're having this conversation about student debt cancellation, the folks who are opposed to it don't really care about any of that stuff. So I am inclined to not talk about it. But you know, people like Sparky Abraham, I think they rightly caution that if you lean too hard into these kind of like flatly material rationalizations for why we should have student debt cancellation, you might find yourself really far down the road one day and look up and realize that you haven't left enough space for you to make the point that even if the degrees aren't quote unquote valuable, even if it is the pottery degree or whatever kind of degree people like Ted Cruz like to make fun of, those degrees are also valuable to our society and our kinds of knowledge that have intrinsic value and that we should protect. And that I don't want to throw liberal arts degrees as a whole under the bus because I'm so strident about making an argument for student debt cancellation. But I, I mean, I, I also take your point that either the, the degrees are valuable um, and therefore the debt should be canceled because we're all helping society, which I think is true, or the degrees are not valuable. And so that we, we've, we've basically been screwed and we should get, compensated for not getting the value of our bargain. And, and, and I, and I, I take, take your point too, yeah. about them having a value outside of their economic uh, multiplicity, but to the, considering to whom I'm speaking and where they're coming from, uh-huh. I don't know that I'm going to convince them that my degree is good for anything other than navel gazing. But I think that I could convince them that the education system to the extent to which it's worth saving does cr- cr- it, it creates people that are better poised to create value. Maybe even my navel gazy degree can, because they have jobs right now that are out there for people who want to be like behavior analysts and even data analysts and teachers are in mm-hmm. huge demand right now. Mm-hmm. So that, that sort of thing goes on too. Yeah. I mean, part of the, part of the issue is, I mean, the, fundamentally, I think the argument is that we were misled by the by the existence of federally guaranteed debt like no other bank is going to give an 18 year old a huge loan for something that they can't you know attach as collateral that there's no there's no actual good that they can um, appropriate if someone doesn't you know pay back their loans you know this this wouldn't exist the soul system wouldn't exist but for the government making not just a monetary commitment but a symbolic commitment to the idea that education is so valuable that it's going to put its federally guaranteed dollars behind paying for it. That, you know, it's not just a bunch of 18 year olds making up that, making that up in their brain that they should go to college because it's valuable. It's literally the government through this program encouraging them to do so. And that's, I think what's so frustrating about the arguments that some folks make, they pretend that 18 year olds 
just randomly decided to commit themselves in this way and not that the government gave them an avenue to do so in a way that contravenes the way that lending practices work in any other context. And you're very right to say the government, because even though it was Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac undergoing essentially predatory lending practices because they're creating credit that they know is no good, they know the government is going to be the one that bails them out. And that's sort of the, I guess you could call that the third point, which is just the broad hypocrisy of people only caring about money printing when it goes to poor people. Where was your righteous indignation mm -hmm. when you paid off the lenders to drive up the tuition by creating credit year over year that they know is no good? You're rewarding, not prosecuting predatory lending practices. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Which but, is also part of why it's frustrating because the Biden part of the argument, the Biden strategy here doesn't get to the underlying problem. And I think people who point out, like, a lot of people do this in bad faith, right, of course. But there are people who point out, well, you're not solving the problem. You're saying that there's this predatory system. You want to basically wipe the slate clean and enable the predatory system to continue. That doesn't make any sense. Well, of course not. It doesn't make any sense. But I can't control that part of it. I can only control the student debt cancellation part of it. So we should take what we can get. But, you know, Biden has put us in the position of, of sounding like we're making an inconsistent argument because he is not committed to the full slate of policies that would correct the underlying issue the way Bernie was. And so now we're only talking about the student debt cancellation prong because that's what he can do by executive order. And, and that's that's what's got us in this weird limbo with this rhetorical limbo. Yeah, the limbo of the, like being stuck between two shitty choices that you were given and not having free community college mm -hmm. and uh well, and well, I can say what England is. Yeah. I can say what it used to be, where it's actually kind of competitive to go to university, but it's basically costless, which I would like mm -hmm. that too. Mm -hmm. And then mm -hmm. Did you have I'm going to backpedal. The second one is this, that I'm going to backpedal to my how I even called it inflationary, because it's really not. Because again, with the stimulus, you and I both know that it's not somebody else's taxes, it's new dollars, which does devalue all existing dollars. So it's not free of cost exactly. But what you're doing when you pay off someone's debt is you're not adding to the M2 money supply, you're subtracting from it. When you pay off a debt, that's money destruction, just like paying your taxes is money destruction. So it's not a monetary inflation. It's very much the opposite of monetary inflation. But can you Nor say that again? It... Just, I, I, I think my, my brain shut off just for well, a second. I just want to make sure I understand you. When a, when a loan is created, whether it's a mortgage mm. or a student loan, that's mm -hmm. money created. The bank creates new money that it's not somebody else's loan that they're giving to you. That's new dollars. And when you repay your loan, that's money destroyed. That's money that ceases to exist. The same way that when the government writes a check, it's created. And when you pay your taxes, it's destroyed. That's fiscal policy. Mm. And in monetary policy, when the bank creates a, a mortgage, that's money created. And when you repay it, it's money destroyed. When you repay your interest, that's not money destroyed. That's money they add to their ledger, not take off of their ledger. Mm -hmm. It's the same with student loan. But the point is you're not growing the money supply when you eliminate debt, which is credit from their point of view. So it's not inflationary in monetary inflation. It's not inflationary in asset inflation. And it's not inflationary in commodity inflation in the long term. It's not inflationary in asset inflation because all of the uh, securitized debts that people use that are assets that you can buy and sell on the stock market, those cease to exist. So it doesn't inflate those prices, it reduces those prices to zero. And the commodity and the inflation is the hardest one because somebody might do a little dance and say, oh, you're wrong. Look, the sticker prices go up because you and I will have more disposable income. Okay, that's true mm -hmm. because we won't be paying our debts. Mm -hmm. But 
we also both know that that sticker price increase is not because their costs went up. It's because they have complete price fixing power. Mm -hmm. They live in a demand uh, limited, like a, I guess it's more like a supply limited economy, but the point is the, the demand, the, the destruction they're trying to create, that the Fed's trying to create right now to lower inflation isn't working because what we're buying are necessities of life, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. not just like extra boat motors and, and whatever. Mm -hmm. So and that's think, not really inflation either. So all and, three of those arguments are bad. Yeah, and, and Fidel's point, um, Professor Kabub's point was that the sectors in which in, that are really driving inflation are all inflationary for th that reason, for not for um, inelastic uh, demand. What do you call it? Demand. Yeah, it's 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 all supply. It's like supply side issues. So there's not enough housing. <laughs> Education yeah, is too expensive. You there's know. enough land, but housing builders don't have to make houses if it's not profitable for them. You know, they can just not do that. Right. And so, yeah, it's right. going to be a shortage, and it continues to be a right. shortage because they're being squeezed out. Right. Same like with healthcare. Sort of like you, you ran through those those four industries that were driving inflation. I think it was transportation, healthcare, education, and housing. And none of those housing. are, you know, those, you know, if I, you know, even if you have a million dollars in your, I mean, obviously it's easier for you to hide in the house if you have a million dollars. But if everybody in America got a million dollars in their pocket, there would still be a housing shortage. And therein lies the good argument against UBI, and because what have we seen with Uh, UBI ended, just a little bit. You said, what did, what did we see with UBI? Well, the point is all that money, whether it's BI operations. Oh dear. Uh, Jonathan, you're, I feel like point, but you cut out for the banker, us. Within one fiscal quarter, it will right back upwards. I can try to turn my wife okay, off. That's, I, can, the, I can hear you die. Okay, that's good. Right. UBI, Sorry, go ahead. I just wanted to make sure I got this. Mm -hmm. UBI increase in wages or reparations in the form of checks would all end up in the hands of the landlord, the banker, and the rent and the monopolist within a fiscal quarter. So that's, that's one of the reasons that mm -hmm. universal basic services is infinitely superior to universal basic income, like Medicare mm -hmm. for all and free college. You know, mm -hmm. you're competing directly with the monopolist when you do these things. Mm -hmm rather than just in allowing them more money to capture. Yeah. Yeah. No, I hear that. I think that's, I think that feels really solid. If there's somebody else who has more economic chops than me that has some pushback, I'm happy to hear it. But I think that makes a lot of sense, Jonathan. Yeah. And I know you were, I heard you once before saying, oh, this inflation, I'm tired of it. But consider that it is regressive. If you go, just like sales tax is regressive. If you go to the gas station for a gallon of gas or a gallon of milk and it costs a dollar more, that dollar is a higher percentage of a poor person's income than a rich person's income. It hurts more the, the less dollars yeah, you have. Yeah. The poor need their dollars let's, to hold value. Yeah. Well, let me ask you this, um, Jonathan. Do you have thoughts? I mean, obviously, part of the news cycle of the weekend that I was desperately trying to ignore was these explicit commitments to drive uh, unemployment up um, from the Fed and people, I think, very rightly pushing back against the cavalier attitude they take toward um, just demolishing the economic uh, stability of low-income people. Yeah, they're not your friends. What, you know, what, 
is there, do you have a sense of a, a left argument for how to address inflation? It's the same as the libertarian argument I had 10 years ago. And they're, oh, you're a libertarian loon for saying they exist to keep the rich rich and the poor poor. But oh, but now look at you. <laughs> just like 10 years ago, I know it just sounds like I'm just bragging on myself. And I was like, oh, lesser up to evilism sucks. And everybody told me I was throwing my vote away. But now look where we are. But it's the same argument, whether it's, it's not right or left. They exist to keep the rich rich and the poor poor. They're a four-pronged force. They have repo rates coupon rates, federal funds rates, and QE and QT. That's the other side of that coin. And all of these tools are regressive. Their only cure for inflation is recession. And their mm -hmm. only cure for recession is inflation. Both of those things are a, a cycle that when it crashes, it's good for who? Asset buyers. And asset buyers describes people with more money than brains. It's just they, they clean up, they clean house when the crash hits bottom because they buy the country at a discount. And then they ride that wave back up. And then to push the people out they and the pensioners out, they crash it back down again, but only after they know it's going to go down because then they buy puts on those positions. If you think fucking Elon Musk lost money when Tesla went down, you don't know how options work. Like everything the rich have is insured and they don't pay interest because they don't need to take out loans to do things. Mm. Like, like the Fed is not your friend. So what's, and, what is the strategy? I mean, is it? Is and it just, the Fed is the strategy. But does that do anything about inflation or should we not care? It, it'll, it'll definitely change the beneficiaries of inflation. And I think it will reduce it. And I think this whole deflation is a r irrational fear. I'm not convinced that it's as bad as people say it is. And even well, isn't if it, yeah, isn't it the case Japan has been in a deflationary cycle for like 20 years or something and it's been like fine am i making that up no no you're not i mean japan is a, is a weird case but they're also not like the, the reserve currency of the world and mm. if you're not the reserve currency of the world you can get away with all kinds of clever accounting mm. we are the reserve currency of the world but we still have people who are really they're getting better at it every single year too who are capable of all kind of creative accounting and the taking the money out of the financial sector forcing it into where real people live and work is what's got to happen. And the best thing we can do to do that is to create a wealth tax as a sort of disincentive that we don't punish people for doing nothing with their money. And when we try to, they do something with their money, we punish the hell out of them. They have to pay FICA. They have to pay sales tax. They have to pay income and everything comes down to high velocity money. If you can just Google the velocity of money, you're talking about when it's transacted and in what sectors. And we don't tax low velocity money, which if it, we would, we would speed it up. And that's the people who hoard it and do nothing with it. We pay yeah, it does seem really on. weird to be talking about. I mean, from what I vaguely remember from talking to Stephanie Kelton, I should just, I should read her book because, you know, it's easier than having to keep coming, bringing her back on the show every time I forget something. But the last time I talked to Stephanie Kelton, I think on Here the Burn, I remember coming away with the question of why we don't tax, like the, the way she described it, it did feel like money not being used was the real problem in the, the it really inflation. Is. It really is. She's and, totally and it does right. feel odd not to be doing a hardcore press for a wealth tax in this moment. In fact, that's and, a good idea for an episode. The weird thing to sell to this crowd is it only really works as a Pigovian tax when you replace every other tax with it, which is every every other tax you you get rid of all of them and you have one tax and it's on stagnant stale 
low velocity well, which will squeeze. Let me let me do an analogy. This will be the last thing I do. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, I guess it's got to be two because I got to explain why the bad one is bad to explain why the good one is good. Sure. The bad one is trickle down. No surprise there, right? Mm-hmm. So when you get trickle down, you picture what either a shower head or uh, rain. Rain is better because there's a couple phenomena at work that the neoliberal believes. One is like a critical mass of moisture in a cloud that you need to form droplets. And the other one is gravity that pulls it down. So they think if you just make the rich rich enough, if you get take this guy's asset portfolio from 13 to 13 and a half million, he'll become a job creator, mm-hmm. right? And he'll shower that money all over the rest of us. Mm-hmm. But those are those things, gravity, is an immutable, ever-present force of nature. And that's why they, they think economics is a science, that it's subject to these forces of nature. That's like, that they're just true of all money everywhere under any system, regardless of mm-hmm. tariffs or mm-hmm. immigration laws or legal structures or whatever, mm-hmm. which is absurd. Economics is not like that. Everything in it is of the system, it's systemic. So a good analogy would be voltage. And how do you explain voltage to a high schooler? You kind of stick with water. You do like a lawn sprinkler. So this is like a trickle up or trickle out model, right? Your amperage is your faucet connected to the house. Your voltage is the pressure with which it comes out of the sprinkler. And then imagine, so the hose goes out and has some coming out the back end. But if you squeeze it so that the sprinkler is the only way out, Mm-hmm. You can increase the pressure without turning the faucet up, or you can increase the voltage without increasing the amperage by adding resistance, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. So that's, there's your 10th grade physics lesson. But in any case, it's the water that comes out of sprinkler that irrigates the yard. It's the current that comes out of the wire that powers your device. And it's the money that comes out of the, the financial sector that powers the real Main Street economy, which is why every pundit you've ever seen with that little S&P 500 futures chart behind them talking about, quote, the economy is as wrong as a person can possibly be. That chart is the opposite of the economy. It's the in the financial, it's the asset bubble that nobody's doing anything with. Mm-hmm. Fed doesn't want them to do anything with because that would be inflationary right now, right? Mm-hmm. Regressive taxes are like taking your fingers and occluding the sprinkler holes so nobody can deploy their wealth productively or turn it into capital. This is another reason I don't like framing everything as anti-capitalism. I'm anti-feudalism. But a wealth tax is like grabbing the hose on the end so that they can't stay in there. It has to go do something. When it costs you something to do nothing, you're going to want to do something. You start a business, you hire people to do whatever. But a second right. ago, I thought you said that if they did something with that money, it would be inflationary. And that's why they don't want them to, you know, the they, the the Fed, the whomever doesn't want them to do anything. It would, if you increase wages right now, it does come out in the form of increase in prices. But there is so much stagnant value in the asset bubble that there would be, you wouldn't be able to keep up with it. And you would also have the you'd have to compare with this a certain level of either antitrust legislation or what we were talking about before is is the replacing of monopolists with commons with 
you if you have something being monopolized, you just make it free, especially things that aren't real jobs like insurance. You know, mm. insurance is just check writing and water and, you know, communicate the, the service for the phone that I'm talking on. Mm. more public transportation right and you're going to lower the cost of living by forcing these people to dump their money out into the economy you're going to create jobs that don't even exist yet you're going to create demand that doesn't exist yet so that it's not inflationary because there's more places for money to go yeah that that point about the places for money to go i think is so key and i think it's a little conceptually sticky at least for me and there was this one your glorious moment exist. where i'm sorry your job didn't exist how long ago yeah i, I don't know bad face been going for just shy of two years now <laughs> started in october yeah, of 2020 new place for money to go september you can have more people doing stuff like that oh no started in september i think i just fully missed my two-year anniversary <laughs> Happy anniversary, Brianna. i think it was september 10th LOL. Thanks for the reminder, Jonathan. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's a really long way to get back to like, oh yeah, wealth tax and Medicare for all. Like we already agreed on that, you know? Yeah. But now yeah. like, like I really, you know, I really thought the whole thing through and I really believe it. Hey, Jonathan, I'm going to let you go and get to some other callers, but I, can you just briefly tell me what's your, what's your background? How did you get into all of this? Well, I went to a, uh, state university and drank a bunch of neoliberal propaganda and then i went and read adam smith after college and found out that everything they told me was a lie hmm. you know like that's dope he, man they, i they, like that yeah like I he's like, actually I like nice. that it's self-taught okay jonathan yeah, might have convinced me to read a book <laughs> yeah uh, all right what is property by prudon that's my yeah, i would start there Okay, let me make a little note in the Slack. Keep myself honest. He's just a he's a he's a good leftist writer, and as if you're like a leftist, that's where I would start. Okay, well, thank you for that, and thank you for um, you know, being uh, patient with me through the, a little bit of this pedantry. But I'm I'm right. learning, and I, I appreciate your your time. I appreciate you, Brenna. Keep it up. Keep all the right. Faith. Thank you. Keep the faith, Jonathan. Okay, my app is being a little sticky, but bide, you're up. How have you been, my friend? Hey, happy two-year anniversary. <laughs> Thank you. Yay, bad faith, let's go. Whoop, whoop. Um, everybody, everybody go to YouTube and help me get to 100,000 subscribers because we're long overdue. Whoop, whoop. Yeah. yeah you're not at 100,000 yet? That doesn't even make sense. It's nuts. I mean, I mean, part of it is my fault. I don't pay that much attention to the YouTube, but it yeah. is a wee bit frustrating. What can you do? Probably chop the videos up into smaller clips, but that's well, a conversation were... for a different time. Yeah, yeah. And, and, you know, once you can get more help behind you too, then you'll probably have an easier time paying more attention to the you know, 10 different things that you have to do day to day. Um, so that, that will probably help. Um, yeah. So I, 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 mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I really liked the, the episodes of the podcast, this last one. Uh, I thought that it was great to give us like a way to basically help out uh, for those of us who are not actual real workers, mm-hmm. but the, the main reason I'm calling is because you are now responsible for me uh, making friends with people in real life who are in the bad faith calling. So congratulations. Oh, I love that. 
that? Who have you been hanging out with? <laughs> so I, I um, visited uh, Long Beach this past weekend, and uh, Fahim, who listens to the show too, OMG, uh, yeah, yeah drove course. out, and we got lunch and tacos, and we just talked about uh, Nick on Rising and how <laughs> yeah. crazy it was to see him go. Nick, by the way, Nick went hard as fuck. I, I cannot believe how, like, how excellent both of those segments were. Like, Nick lit that shit up. I, I, honestly, that was, <laughs> that was wild. I've been thinking about that a lot because, like, the comments, too, because I'm one of those people who will kind of read the YouTube comments, even though I don't put much, uh, you, you know, you never know who's posting mm-hmm. them or whatever. But seeing how many people were just down there just giving him props for mm-hmm. it and agreeing with him was super, uh, I don't know. It was just really incredible to see. And it made me think of the, uh, about the potential for getting those types of voices more into the mainstream and how mm-hmm. willing people would just be able to connect with them because he's, you know, if you're speaking all facts like that, then what, mm-hmm. what's anybody got to say? Right. And so, mm-hmm. Fahim and I were talking about that and uh, enjoying our tacos. So, uh... <laughs> yeah, honestly, I was like really pleasantly surprised uh, by the comments under that Nick video because you know I didn't know how it was gonna go, and I was trying to I was trying to figure out why it was that the audience was so receptive to it because you know sometimes you're on Rising. What I really value about it is that is that it's this test kitchen, it's untapped veins of solidarity and like. Know, mutual interest that right. often go obscured because of the bifurcation and also the unwillingness to talk about various third rails. And I did not expect someone very stridently defending communism to fly on a channel. We've done segments about, you know, like, um, what, who is it? DeSantis or Cruz? I forget which one who has like the anti-communism day or like days to honor the victor day to honor the victims of communism. And under that segment, people were like, yes, of course, this is a good idea. So I don't know if it's just that more people from who don't normally watch came out of the woodwork to comment positively. I don't know if it's that Nick did such a beautiful job of reframing the issue. Cause I do think that pivot to, okay, if communists are so, you know, bad if the system is so bad then leave them alone and let them crash and burn on their own like that was a really genius way to reframe it and maybe that resonated with people but whatever it is i do think we have to keep keep testing that formula out because it worked like the audience was largely with him yeah they were hooked i mean and and i do think i mean honestly i think some of those comments are just fake because i've like I've gone down rabbit holes where I'm like looking up the profiles of these people and they don't got any other shit on YouTube. They created their account just a, you know, like a couple months ago or something like that. And it's all, they're all posting like very similar things that they're, you, you can tell they're not even watching the video. It's some mm-hmm. dumbass talking point, blah, blah, blah. And then whatever, you know, maybe, and, and I, you know, I'm not one of those guys who thinks like everything's up or that, you know, there's whatever the Cambridge, what, whatever that Facebook thing was. Cambridge Analytica. Um, yeah, whatever that is. And, mm-hmm. you know, I've seen too many people go down that rabbit hole and then, like, come out believing the earth is flat. Mm-hmm. So I, mm-hmm. I tend to, you know, stay away. But I do think there's some of that going on on the Hill mm-hmm. um, in their comment section. But, 
yeah, I just I, I I was really impressed with that. I was really impressed with Nick. I was really impressed with how people responded to it. I think I do think that framing was key. The idea of if it's so bad, if it's so unsuccessful, then why is the United States constantly going out of its way to make sure that these places fail? Mm-hmm. And when he started talking about Cuba and healthcare in comparison to the United States and some of the numbers that were just sort of undeniable, I thought that was really, really effective arguing too. Although I do, I worry about Robbie because like, man, people were shitting on him on Twitter. I hope he's not Rob, Robbie's, Robbie's a grown adult. And there are plenty of segments where his left co-host, whether it's me or Katie or, you know, Olayami or whomever, has gotten dried for filth. So, you know, he's, you know, one thing I really do like and appreciate about Robbie is that he is your classic, resilient Leo. He lets it roll right off and we're on and popping on the next segment, you know, no harm, no foul. Yeah. So, you know, some people were joking about like, no, Nick's not going to be invited back. Nick can come back. I hope to see him back soon, along with all kinds of folks who I think have really powerful voices in the left media sphere, many of whom are over at RBN. So, Yeah, yeah. Well, that's what's up. Well, I'm looking forward to Thursday's episode. I mean, the main reason I called is just to be like, me and Fahim are homies now. So uh, <laughs> I love that to for you, too. See pictures of us on Twitter or on uh, Instagram, <laughs> just hanging out, throwing up that's signs. So cute. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I- I'm not- I was a little jealous of um, uh, Breaking Points' live show, in part because, it, you know, I always imagined doing something like that so I can meet folks all across the country. And hopefully mm-hmm. I can get my act together and try to put set, set, set something up because it would be so nice to touch down in different parts of the country and see that some of you guys awesome. in real life. Because I got some friends who want to go to the Breaking Points thing, too. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's going to be in Chicago, so I don't really have an excuse, I mean, not to go. Um but we were we were literally talking about that because, you know, like there are a couple of people on this app, too, in particular, who just constantly like calling each other or hanging out. Like I talked to Shelly, I talked to Rika. What up, Rika? What, what, what's up? Oh, yeah. Happy uh, belated John, birthday, Rika. I saw that on the chat. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, you know, we're st- like Rika and I are planning uh, to do like a, a, a podcast episode just about how you organize a union. Uh, oh, you guys are so that makes me so happy please do when it when it's done let us know about it so that we can share it here uh on the debrief okay for sure yeah definitely let you know and it was all i mean that's all rika's idea because you know she she just be doing it uh and she's got so much experience with it so i'm really looking forward to to doing that too but uh yeah we're we're becoming friends and we're gonna have all kinds of cool pictures of us out there hanging out. So, but if you ever do really do a uh, like a meetup thing, I think that would be that'd be pretty dope. Okay, let me work on it. Let me get my act together. You guys, oh, okay. the to do list just gets longer and longer, and the days know, don't uh, get any longer alongside them. Okay, but I'm gonna work on it. Okay, for sure. All right, All right it's cool. always good to hear from you, Bide. Yeah, thanks for having me. Bye. All right, take care. Keep the faith. All right. Cousin Eric, long time no chat. How are you doing? I'm good. Had a schedule change, but I'm good otherwise. Yeah. Uh, yeah, because I'm still teaching. I'm just teaching. A, I'm teaching a different math class, and I'm at a different school. So 
Oh, okay. Is it like better, worse, different kind of students, different kind of faculty uh, vibe? I mean, be- I mean, better academically, but when it comes to actually understanding life, mm. compared to my compared to my um alternative center kids, they are better at life than them. Okay. So, so okay. that would. Yeah. Well, what's on, what's in your mind tonight? Um. Clarifying that, well, let me clarify. It's Ron DeSantis that did that stupid um, evil. Oh, communism. Yeah. <laughs> that, that was, that, that, and, I, and I know I wrote it in chat. That's him just appealing to these pussy ass Gusanos down here. Uh, for all for all Castro's faults, he had a good reason to get rid of. Oh, to get rid of yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. For I, I get it. I certainly get the politics of it. Um, but it is, it is a, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a weird, it's a weird place for us to be <laughs> as a country. And I think it does really start to underscore uh, Nick's point. Like, why are they so pressed if the, if, if their failures are self-evident, if communism's failures are self-evident. But um, yeah, thanks for, thanks for that clarification. What's on your mind? Um, dealing with this, um, we're on the topic of, um, uh, more working class unions and different things like that, but teaching in Florida, mm-hmm. uh, especially with math, because all our standards got updated. That's the kind way of putting it. With the mm-hmm. new S standards and whatnot, and we're somehow expected to do this all in one year. Um, it's a lot of changes happening in one school year. So let me just tell a lot of you, just if you know a teacher in Florida, especially a math teacher, just be patient. Okay. Don't be a dick. Mm-hmm. We're dealing with too many goddamn changes. And, and of course, I'm already alarmed because I'm teaching Algebra 2 now, and I give my students basic algebra, and most of them failed, failed the assignment. And I'm like, oh, no. Hmm. I mean, so, so what do you do about that? I mean, how, what, what well, is the expectation well, of you as a teacher? Because there's these well, like narratives, like you're supposed to be able to stand on a, a desk and do a little dead poet society speech and everybody rebounds, but what's the reality? Look, you, you just, you just try, you just try not to like roll your eyes and get pissed off. Um, and you go, I look at these stats, I'm just like, bro, y- this y'all know this algebra one stuff, right? You're in Algebra 2 now. Like, oh, but that's right. A lot of them haven't been in school for like a year and a half or two years. Mm -hmm. We have to consider that too. And a lot of them were like cheating on their assignments. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I was talking to a teacher friend of mine who's a new teacher. He's, you know, just starting. And he's really, you know, like he's seeing a really significant difference between his 11th grade class and his 10th grade class. And when he spoke to some of the other faculty members, they attributed it to the 11th graders having had at least one year of real high school before the pandemic. And the 10th graders don't have a clue. They're basically just middle school students still. And that is like whew, a real heavy thing to reckon with as a teacher, as a student, and as a society. Yeah, and plus, like, a lot of teachers were telling me, like, they had to do the half and half, the half and half split where they're, they're like, yeah, we have students in the class, but we also got students on on little home connect thing. So 
we got 20 something in the class, but like maybe five or 10 on the home connect. So we got, mm-hmm. so you got to tell us, hey, turn your monitor on. Hey, mm-hmm. really, dude, you're watching TV? Like, bro, I have homework for you. Yeah. I didn't have to deal with that too much of the at the alternative center, mainly because there it wasn't so much me teaching as much as it was um, making sure our kids didn't do something really stupid. Because again, I have my students with records who, like I said, have a better understanding of life than my current students now. So. So yeah, I have to pull someone to the side like, hey, bro, like, like Mr. Gray drops the professionalism right then and there. Like, hey, bro, what the fuck? You know, <laughs> like I have to drop the professionalism sometimes. Oh, but made me smile because my dad was Mr. Gray, <laughs> Mr. Gray, the teacher. But but tell me, tell me, Eric, what t- what do you have any questions about? You know, what's been going? Because I, I confess, I've seen you, Eric, in some of these chats on some of these other live streams and programs that I watch over at RBN and elsewhere raising some concerns about what's happening at Bad Faith. And so I, I want you to voice them to me. What's what's on your look, mind? The only, like, I guess I guess we would call it concern. Because mm-hmm. sometimes I wonder how truly vested you really are. Because, well, I'm just saying, like, we have people like myself, you know, teaching shit. Um, you have people like myself, you have, you know, people that aren't, that don't have your, like, that aren't as in, that aren't in, in as good of a situation as yours, right? Mm-hmm. So, that, that's where I kind of, that's where I kind of like, okay, so, if this, if any little thing goes wrong, how is, how much is Brie really in this? And then, you know, you know what I'm saying? Like, how much, how much are you really? I, I can't help but wonder that. Look, I think that's completely fair. I think that's completely fair, Eric. You know, and we won't know until we're tested. All of us, to certain degrees, will find out when shit hits the fan how much we're willing to sacrifice and how much we're willing to commit. And I'm appreciative of people like you and folks over at RBN who do maintain a really um, focused class analysis and are ready to point out ways in which folks from different kind of class perspectives might have, may be affected in their political analysis as a consequence of that. And I, I don't ever take offense to people pointing out that we're not all equally yoked in all of this and don't have the same stakes in all of this. Cause it's obviously true. Go ahead. Yeah, but it, yeah, a lot of times, like when I raise it, it's not, it's not really just about me, mm-hmm. you know, because, like I said, when I have, when I had conversations with my students back, back at um, the alternative center, because mm-hmm. you got to remember, I grew up in a lot of the same areas that they did. It's, mm-hmm. I guess it's a lot of us. It's a lot of us, primarily black. So. So when I get on, so when I get on, and I sometimes get pissed off at whether it's you or whoever, I'm like, I'm not just speaking for me. Mm-hmm. Like I, I'm not just asking this for me because I'm going back and having conversations. I'm going back and listening to what my students, who again were all growing up in the same places, 
all seeing the same shit. I can't bullshit them. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, that's a lot of where I come from with it. It's just, it's, when, you, when you see me get pissed off, it's not, just think it's not just me. You know what I'm saying? Like, it's not. No, I, I get it. And I don't take it personally. And like I said, I, I appreciate it. And I'm, I'm glad people like yourselves are out there holding me accountable. And if you see or hear me say something specific that you think is reflective of my class position, I, I want to know it. And I want to be able to hashtag check my privilege if that's what it takes and, or make room for other people who have a more um, appropriate analysis, if that's also what it takes. So that's what part of why I really appreciate this show because it does, you know, allow me to share this, share the stage as it were. Yeah. And there was a time where I had to, oh boy, um, especially when I have like, and I've had to deal with the situation with some Hispanic folks that, that are like, oh, the whole communism evil shit. I've had to deal with that. Um. And this was during Black History Month of all times, so me bringing up the Panthers was fun. Um, that that was fun, and and I, I look at them and go, "Well, what do you want me to say to other Black people?" Panthers are part of our history too. We have a history. What, what is that conversation like when they say, "Well, my personal trajectory with communism leads me to believe this," and you say, "Well, my." people's trajectory with communism has been a more positive experience. You know, is there an acknowledgement of any differences there or reflection about why it is that they have their, their own position, potentially a class position in relationship to Cuba or wherever it was that they are from their parents or grandparents. Well, because a lot of, because I, usually the first question I ask is what is your definition? Mm. And the first, first thing I get brought up is the whole, well, dictatorships. I'm like, bruh, you and I talk about what what you and I talk about are two different things. Mm-hmm. You're referring to dictatorships. I'm talking about stateless classes, moneyless. Like we're talking about two different things here. <laughs> so, it, like, then then the the whole kind of like I'm not here to tell them what to think, mm-hmm. but I'm here to clear that up because mm-hmm. I'm like you can't be in a class with people who have a different history than you and then once they start reading their history more now you're in conflict because your histories are so different i mean the very least i could do is prevent that from happening yeah so are you do you feel like you're ever able to you know make those distinctions relevant to folks or does it take more work than the passing conversations that you yeah it's it takes it takes work um because sometimes, unfortunately, you have, you know, your own, your own people want to tune you out and shit. Why am I listening? Um, I'm trying to tell you, dumbass. But it it is what it is. I I try. Well, look, I I, 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 mm-hmm. I I look and go, okay. Well, if I don't try, who else is going to? Because I'm like, look at most of your history teachers. They won't touch this with a 10-foot fucking pole. Yeah, or in parts of the country, it's now illegal to touch it with a 10-foot pole. I'm, like, at, this point, at this point, I really don't care. 
<laughs> so like, cause it's, it's like you can't be in the same room with each other and then have this difference. Mm-hmm. And then it get awkward the moment you, I'm like, when y'all start reading, I said when, not if. When y'all start reading more, it's going to get awkward. So so I kind of blame Ron DeSantis in that because I'm like, hold on. You're going to make this awkward now. I don't want to divide over differences in history. Well, look, Eric, I, I really appreciate that you are so engaged and are trying and are fundamentally doing the enormously important and ever more difficult state that does not make it easy for you to do exactly that. So, you know, look, I always want to hear from you. I always want to hear your concerns. And I appreciate you for, uh, you know, listening and being so active in these communities that we're at RBN and other places on left media. So thank you. And keep the um, No problem. Appreciate you. All right. Take care. All right. Bye-bye. Andre, unmute yourself and let us know what's on your mind tonight. Andre, can you unmute yourself? Is the app being a little glitchy? I'll give it a second. All right. Well, we have all now experienced my secret talent. <laughs> Andre, uh, if you go to the back of the line, I will pull but I'm going to move along to Bruce now. Okay. Bruce, can you unmute yourself and let us know what's on your mind? Hey, Bray, how's it going? I'm doing all right. How are you? I'm doing okay. Yeah, I've Called in the last couple times and got stuck in the back of the line. Glad I was able to uh, get in within the first two hours, I guess, and not get booted off. <laughs> Andre uh, walked. Uh, Andre glitched so that Bruce could fly. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. Anyway, uh, yeah, so my thoughts, though, tonight on the show, it was a great show. I'm glad you were able to speak with the actual uh, on-the-ground you know, worker in the industry, the railroad industry. Um, yeah, kind of refreshing. It's a ref- refreshing to see a talking head that's not like, like it kind of has like the shitty audio or like you know he, he has like AirPods in and he ha- just has like random artwork on his wall. You know, just <laughs> from a viewing perspective alone, I think that was really cool to see and um, really like. Anyway, it's refreshing to see. Um, yeah, but I really feel like uh, this whole general strike concept is really important. I really feel like when people talk about like major political moments you know it's really stuff like this that's at the heart of it and um when people talked about like when january 6th happened people on the left were kind of had this like sort of shadow thought of like damn i wish that was us i wish we had Mm -hmm. the balls to like do something real like that and it's like i really feel like um the general strike is like a left equivalent of of january 6th like it's Mm -hmm. that's the january 6th of the left like but i think at the same time in the same ways that January 6th ultimately failed, if you want to think about it that way, like it was more or less just like a PMC kind of the people who had the day off of work or had like enough, like sort of petty bourgeois grievances to be able to mm-hmm. like, you know, buy a plane ticket and go to the Capitol on the, on the same day and be able to just like kind of make a clown show of themselves. And yeah, granted some people died right too, but that's like neither here nor there, I guess. But, um, Either way, I really feel like if we're going to do the damn thing, which is like general strike, it really needs to be 
like methodical and well planned out. Like um, I've been recently revisiting uh, the book Dune. I don't know if you've read that book at all, but um, I read it when I was a kid. Okay, my brother yeah. read every sci-fi thing, and I did whatever my brother did. So, but not since I was a kid. Sure. Yeah. Well, I guess if you remember at all, like the Harkonnen, uh, in the first couple chapters, they have the Harkonnen meeting with like, uh, where there's like the Baron Harkonnen guy, and then he's meeting with the his supercomputer Mentat guy, and they're explaining the plan about how they're gonna like have the trap about the the one people who go to the desert planet and it's all like about plans within plans within plans. If you remember that at all, not, really, not really. I'm afraid. I mean, I did watch or, the new movie as well. If that's or, helpful. Yeah. <laughs> it wasn't really a reference in the movie as much, but it's in the book, but okay. anyway, like it, it's like in chapter two or three, I want to say of the book I've been revisiting it, but mm. neither anyway, neither here nor there. But the point is, I guess it's just, we need to know our enemy, I guess, well enough to know, what their response is going to be like is is this a game of chess not checkers i guess mm-hmm. in a sense and and i think you know it's really going to be a lot of theory a lot of people willing to sort of you know educate the populace in a way that to reframe the issue so whether it's like nick going on a place like rising reframing it the issue of communism versus capitalism to a right-wing audience you know in a in a sense of like well why is capitalism doing all it's can, all that it can to, to eat away communism or to like to starve out communism and then pretend like it's the communist fault for starving its own people. When, and either way, we're all, we're all aware of how that, how that like sort of uh, pantomime hap- happens where it's like sort of this sort of gaslighting effect of like, Oh, why are you hitting yourself? Why are you hitting yourself? When it's mm-hmm. like, you know, why, why are you sanctioning me? Why are you mm-hmm. like, whatever, anyway. Mm-hmm. But um, yeah, I, I guess that's kind of a rambling, rambling series of thoughts, but it all just to say that, um, if we're going to do this general strike, it really has to be like all hands on deck. I really feel like there's like sort of great flood narrative, the grandiose thing in my mind, like, like all this, like sort of monopolization of our world and sort of, you know, the, the big, like the big tech, big, this big, that, you know, all these like big monopolized, all these like sort of industries with like the stagnant wealth. Like I think, uh, someone previously was talking about that, like the, the wealth that doesn't create anything. It's going to like, Mm-hmm. boil over or yeah jonathan yeah he was like really talking about that and it, it really rang true for me because it it seems like that's gonna it's gonna boil over at some point like and there's all these different analogies to water that we use with money like how it's like fluid or it's you know mm-hmm. like uh whatever it got cash flow you, or jonathan was cash. talking about a cloud in the rain and whether or not you know gravity was gonna naturally cause it to be trickled down yeah it is right. funny that it's a lot of water analogies Right. Yeah. And that's the thing. Yeah. We just got to like be able to know when, like, may not know when the water is going to fall out or when, when the flood's going to come, but just know, like, I don't know, sort of build the ark in a way, I guess. Like, and that's what I guess maybe, maybe one question I do have is like, what, what kind of thoughts do you have about like actually formally joining uh, other networks such as like uh, maybe breaking points? I think I brought this up. I called all, I called a couple of shows back about this, like, joining forces with a show like either Branky points or maybe even the RBN network, like maybe not formally becoming a part of that network, but like sort of making more ties than just sort of friend of the show, this, that, and the other thing, like sort of joining forces and kind of condensing your message more into a cohesive unit. So it's not so much like individually. I know like a couple of shows ago, you were talking about like how you're really burnt out and kind of 
it's hard to like manage all the little different moving moving parts of your one show but i really feel like uh taking more of a collective model to the to your operation could help out in one way or another like to be able to to not have to work on just your show but also to be able to sort of bounce ideas off other leftist creators or even just populist creators and kind of get your message out there in a more effective way but that's just my thoughts what are you what are your thoughts on that yeah i mean i think there's probably a lot of opportunities for you know um synergy between various platforms that i think we should all continue to explore from my personal perspective in terms of my own workload i think what i need is more kind of production help and producing help as opposed to more kind of you know amplification of the messaging and i think it's great to be able to obviously have people on and continue to boost each other and piggyback each other and amplify each other but from my from the workflow side of it the issue is you know production help and booking help and people you know helping with the flow of emails and, and things like that so i you know am hopeful to be able to have the resources to do that um because people just need to be paid to do that work which is also important and i think that you know i have i give a lot of props to um smaller channels that have even fewer resources and people are working full-time jobs and they're still like coming home and like logging on to cover the day's news on a daily basis folks like rbn and like the vanguard boys who are doing it on a daily basis and it's also not their full-time gig i think it's really incredible and that's part of why i feel so strongly about you know having them on referencing them and telling people to go and like subscribe to their patrons and and subscribe to their channels and things like that because I, I do very much recognize how difficult that is because um, you know I was freelancing for the first part of my career as well and it was such a gift I think the, probably the most peaceful moment of my professional life was working at the intercept which was the only time it was like a real job full-time not contingent on you know clicks or maintaining subscribers or anything like that and also my job was to do the politics and to have the opinions and to you know, read, if I had to read all day to understand something, that was part of the job and it was an amazing amount of freedom to be in that kind of a space. So I want that uh, for everyone. <laughs> right. Yeah. I guess in my mind, it sort of seems like uh, you could create something like that with, uh, you know, joining forces with like maybe the Katie Hopper show with the Vanguard, with RBN, with, uh, you know, breaking points. Like it seems there's a lot of like, I guess this is a common like trope and reoccurring conflict on the left, like this sort of circular firing squad of like different, like, you know, sort of litmus tests, like for as much as we did, you know, sort of want to talk about like, you know, the working proletariat or whoever it is, a collective, you know, joining forces and taking over the 1%. I really feel like it's sort of like they've rigged the game in such a way where we're all sort of baked like the neoliberal individualism is so baked into our subconscious to the point where it's like, even when we're trying to build a revolution, we have to do it like ch channel by channel, Patreon by Patreon. And it's like, you know, to the theory of like, uh, or I guess the like sort of mode of thinking when we were talking about like, Oh, when people have that $27 or whatever that they would give to like Bernie Sanders or something like the same would probably go for like, uh, you know, whichever Patreon you're going to subscribe to, you know, I, I feel like, uh, if you could pull your resources in a better way, people wouldn't but be I, so I have a little, I'm like, not entirely sure what you imagine would be 
the benefit. I don't think that there should be only one left show. I mean, is that your argument that there should just be one left show? And, you know, cause I, I think that it's a good thing to have a multiplicity of voices and perspectives. I don't think, I don't, I don't, I don't, you know, I'm, I'm friends with Crystal. I don't see it as a circular firing squad that she has a show and I have a show or that RBN has a show and I have a show. And I think there are very, there are different tones that are set on these shows, different focuses, focuses that are taken up by these shows and whether or not they all end up being under one umbrella at some point or another. I think the diversity there is really good. The diversity isn't the problem. It's folks who are, who interpret differences as kind of, um, you know, indictments of each other or who feel competitive in the space and therefore put each other down for, for clout. But I don't think that that's a feature of people having different shows as much as it is a feature of some people, you know, uh, just a fact of some people feeling perhaps more insecure in the space or feeling like the only way that they can amplify themselves is to kind of take aim at others. I mean, what do you make yeah. of that? Yeah, I guess maybe I have to think about that some more, but maybe it's a little bit of a chicken and the egg type of scenario, but, you know, which came first, the clout or the, or the individual, or like, I don't know, like there's sort of these, these audiences are built up around these different creators. And I hear them like talk on individual shows about like, oh, I watch this person. I watch that person. I do this, but, and like, I don't know, like, I guess I'm looking I'm looking for, I'm not trying to listen to like every single artist's greatest hits individually on their albums. I want like the anthology album that just listens to like banger, banger, bang, you know, like I'm, I don't want to like go sort of like uh, me, me personally, I want to be able to like just get the distilled version of each person. Yeah. And if that's in one central channel or one like sort of network of channels, I feel like that could be a more effective. Well, I do could, think that folks could, like. And it could Sorry, build like it could it could build credibility even more into like the more mainstream audience like where you could like maybe get on a major like when say like maybe Katie Halper or Aaron Mate will go on like Fox News or uh, randomly for like just because like they want to quote unquote talk to that audience who would deny that much of an audience but I feel like if they were connected to a broader network of channels then it would be able to no one would be able to like write them off as just, Oh, that's just some kooky leftist. That's just some one weird person who went to a weird college and had this weird idea about that. Like it's more or less like it's sort of, it builds a sort of populist movement in and of itself to where it's like, it can, it can be, it can exist and, and dwarf the power of, of like big, big cable shows and stuff. And like, now maybe that's just a utopian idea of mine, but, no, I, maybe that's yeah, just I just, a... I just really want to encourage people to think through what they're saying. I mean, what would it look like for me to join Breaking Points? Crystal has her job. You know, she's doing it very well over at, at Breaking Points. So what is it that you're imagining happening with me? I, I just I don't under, I, I just like, like I, I completely understand the idea of there being like a network, but that network doesn't exist. You know, and, and I would love for someone to have the resources and infrastructure to continue to boost people on the left. But I'm, I'm not the one that's in the, that position that needs that. So people who are other folks, I think, you know, if you want to support left media, if you want people to grow, if you want people to have more of a platform, you should subscribe to RPN. You should subscribe to their Patreon. You should post their videos on YouTube. You should retweet them when you see them. You should like the videos when they come across the feed. You know, you should post the videos to Facebook or, or what have you. But, like, guys, like, really think through what it is that you're imagining imagining here. Like, I, I, I think it's valuable that the Jimmy Dore show exists and the people who, like, 
the tone that he sets over there find that to be attractive. I think it's valuable that people who are listening or watching kind of a corporate media or are scrolling through articles at the Hill get a perspective at the Hill. I think it's valuable for folks to have the completely independent uh, opportunity to go and watch Breaking Points and subscribe to all of the community that they have there. And I think it's amazing that Breaking Points has taken other folks with smaller platforms and elevated them and brought them into the mix, especially folks like Jordan Cheriton and folks who do on the on the ground research and on the ground reporting who don't often have the same level of audience as someone who does more opinion news. And integrating that in, I think, makes a lot of sense. But I don't think making one news show is necessarily productive. That's all. I, I think there obviously need to be multiple shows. Right. I guess it wouldn't necessarily be one show. I guess I don't mean to frame it like that, but I guess it's just the way that they're sort of balkanized right now. It feels like kind of just these small echo chambers of like, you know, people just like insularly like maybe like bouncing ideas around, which maybe has its own benefit in and of, in and of itself. But it seems like they lack a collective vision enough to implement that into the real world as much as like, you know, you might meet up with someone and, and have tacos and talk about, you know, ideas like that individually. I feel like there's not, it's sort of like, just chance happenings versus like, I don't know if there could be some sort of network of shows with individual voices, right. That people could maybe watch more one voice or the other voice, but it's all sort of more or less like have a collective vision of trying to like, you know, rebel against the the 1% or whatever it is. Like, I feel like it's just the, the way that the, all the voices are right now, it's more or less just like a wilderness of neoliberal capitalism where it's just sort of like controlled, opposition in a way like we like the one percent has provided the platform of youtube and all this these different platforms and like you can talk ad infinitum to any experts you want but it's like sort of the the payoff in the real world in politics or in like substantive gains in people's lives is more or less just like i don't know just kind of talking around and not really implementing anything but well if you're asking if someone should you know organize <laughs> and do something then i think that's that's a different question like is someone going to pick up the mantle and do certain things in the real world and can left media kind of support those efforts in a coordinated way that is i think obviously the goal but i don't think that's the same thing as expecting you know crystal ball to be the one who plans a given rally or crystal ball to be the one you know, who gets everybody on a Zoom call and says, this is what we're going to talk about on our shows this week. I mean, right. I, 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 like, I think that there are also people who are playing different roles here. And, and while I would love for it to be the case that when a moment like force of vote happens, there is some consensus about people advocating why well, that's a good idea. I think that that's, you know, you can't force that. And when force of vote did happen, those media channels that supported it did support it and talk about it in a way that wasn't coordinated, but which, I think boosted each other in a way that felt validating and important and those channels that just fundamentally didn't agree, didn't agree. And it was what it was, but I don't, you know, I don't, I don't, I don't necessarily see the solution to be structurally making it one mega MSNBC of the left. You know, I think that there, are, you have to think about why, what, who benefits and why people merge, you know, someone like Jordan Unfortunately, the reality is that when you talk to workers, when you do basic, you know, research and interviews, you it's not as sexy as doing a take on the woman with the big breasts in Canada. You know, so having Jordan folded into an opinion show makes a lot of sense. 
you know, that it's helpful to all involved. Um, but that's not necessarily, I don't think that it's like the Vanguard guys and RBN should be one show. I think it's great when they go on each other's shows and talk about their disagreements and disagreements, but I don't know that there's necessarily a value add to them being, you know, RBNV, RBNVG <laughs> or whatever, yeah. you know what I mean? But maybe, maybe I have to think that through more, but I appreciate you calling in. Sure. Yeah. Thanks. Yeah. Thanks for the call. Yeah. Have a good All one. All right. Take care, Bruce. Yep. See ya. All right, Andrew, what's on your mind? Hey, how are you? I'm doing well. How are you? Um, I have lots of thoughts and feelings. Um, one of those being nervous. I am a first time caller. Oh, welcome. Don't be nervous. Here, where's my applause? Oh, <laughs> thank you. They love me. They really love me. <laughs> what's in your mind? Um, is it okay if we bring it back to a place of COVID? Yeah, of course. All right. So here's my deal is um, I am a healthcare worker. Um, mm -hmm. I got my first job um, in a hospital as a patient care tech, uh, January 2020. Very good timing. Um, yeah. <laughs> um, and I guess I just want to talk about how um, I guess I have a lot of I'm kind of confused about the lack of urgency. It seems like a lot of the left has around COVID mm. um, in the sense that uh, at risk of um, being accused of being a lib. Um, Never here. <laughs> um, I think that everyone masking in public spaces right now is um, the thing that makes the most sense. I actually don't think it's sustainable for all of us to be catching this cardiovascular virus over and over again, um, once or twice a year. And I, you know, I just don't share people's confidence that it's going to be okay. Do you know what I, do you know what I mean? Yeah, I look, I agree. I've, I've said my piece about my personal choice to mask. Although right. I will say like, I find myself slipping more as the cultural expectation becomes that people don't mask. It's weird that even though, I, I know it's right. It's like, it's like the reason why we have to have social security. Like people don't save, like we know we need right. to save, but emergencies happen and we don't. It's, that's how I feel about masking. Like the social pressure to mask going away makes it so that I don't make sure there's a mask in my pocket every time I leave the way that I used to. And I find myself sometimes caught outside caught like, Oh, I'm, I was just going to go for a walk, but then I was going to go into a store and I actually don't have a mask on me, you know? Right. I feel, you know, I, I feel that pressure too, but I think also just, um, I mean, everyone's been affected by COVID, obviously it's a global crisis, but I think it's just because I have a very, uh, visceral connection to the issue. Mm -hmm. Um, I feel a little bit more resistant to just, um, you know, succumbing to the urge to just like throw the mask off in mm -hmm. stores and whatnot. Um, I think, um... Oh, sorry, I'm going to be sighing a lot. Um, you know, like many um, people in the workforce right now in healthcare, I do have some kind of post-traumatic stress surrounding COVID. Mm -hmm. But um, I did want to try to talk about it. So I'm going to be as... I'm going to try to be as articulate and uh, calm and non-inflammatory. 
but you know, the subject does kind of bring out the fuck you and me. Do you know what I mean? That's okay. That's okay. <laughs> it's a safe space. It's okay. You you are a healthcare provider who's been here through the worst of it, and you deserve to blow up a little steam. And we'll all have thick skin, and we'll deal with we'll deal with whatever barbs go flying. <laughs> I appreciate that. Um, I just I think um, you know uh, what we know about this as a cardiovascular virus at this point. And I'm going to keep saying that word because I, I don't think that gets nearly enough emphasis that this is a cardiovascular virus. I know mm-hmm. that we know it as a respiratory virus because that's the most, um, that's the most obvious symptom um, and the most talked about symptom, but it's the respiratory symptoms are, seem to be, um, sorry, um, So, okay. Sorry, I don't really have a plan going into this. Um, No, you're good. You're fine. Take your time. It seems like... So what we know is that endothelial dysfunction seems to come into play here. And what that basically is, is like endothelium is the inner layer of your um, vasculature, your arteries, your veins, your capillaries, et cetera, et cetera. Mm -hmm. um, That, you know, prevent clotting, that you know, control the dilation or the constriction of your veins, mm. um, has many functions. Um, and the, where the respiratory symptoms seem to come in are, um, you know, the alveoli, mm. which are like the little sacs where the gas exchange happens. They're attached mm. to capillaries that, um, you know, the damage to the capillaries is what causes the lung scarring that we're seeing. And I remember this from the magic school bus. So, guys, it's like the inside of your lungs. Right, right, right. <laughs> They're like little fingers that create like surface area, and there's capillaries in the little fingers that do the air, the oxygen exchange between the stuff that you inhale, the oxygen you inhale, and it's, that's how it gets into your bloodstream. Yes, that, thank you, Miss Frizzle. Thing. Sorry, not to be, sorry, not to be Miss Frizzle. Uh, I just. Uh, I don't really know where I was going into this. I just have lots of th- thoughts and feelings. Um, but I guess. What I'm trying so to address... It's, it's Sorry, a cardiovascular disease, and right. you think that that's not emphasized enough, how it, it, it really is affecting this key system uh, and has potential long-term effects that are not being credited sufficiently. Right, because we is are that, seeing... A, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. And we are seeing a lot of people, um, people of all sorts of... Um, you know, we're seeing a lot of... Like, I saw a Facebook group that had a 1,000 members that had... Um, that was like basically a support group for athletes who were having long COVID. Mm. And it's, it, I just don't, it's not making sense to me though, how we're just kind of accepting, like, I understand we're all tired of masks. Me too. Like, I don't want to go to the store wearing a mask all the time. Like it doesn't feel good to me, but it's the thing that makes the most sense because, you know, we there's still so much we don't know about this virus and what we do know isn't looking very good. Um, and I remember like a caller you were talking to when you were talking about how your preference to wear a mask, to still wear a mask on a plane, and the caller responded and was like, Oh, like forever. And I think there's this like weird, this weird idea that people that are still pushing for, you know, universal masking in public indoor places that we think masks should be a thing forever. But I, don't think anyone really holds that view that masking should I mean, be a forever thing. But also, all. like, low-key, I'm sorry, like, people in other parts of the world regularly ma- wear masks when they feel sick, you know, right. in lots of Asia. 
you know, it's it's a much more common thing to do in public spaces. It's not to prevent getting sick generally, but to prevent spreading sickness. But still, like, they do that forever. There, there is a weird aspect of diet culture, which presumes that diets are short-term, when really you should be trying to find out, like, a healthy eating situation that you can do, yes, forever. <laughs> like, and, right. like, a lot of the, the health interventions that we 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 take on, we think of as short-term when we should be thinking of them as lifestyle changes and not diets, you know? Yeah. Like exercise habits, not just like, I'm going to run real hard for three months and try to drop 20 pounds or whatever. Right. Um, so I, I'm so, just saying, I don't have a, the objection to the forever aspect of it, although I appreciate how people who are having to wear masks at work and for long stretches of the day and actually are more substantively inconvenienced by it than I am do have more concerns that are that are more legitimate. Oh, and like certain aspects, like I actually think masking in healthcare settings, you know, in a hospital, you know, the place where sick people come, I think masking should continue to be a thing. But beyond that, I just think that um, people just have a very short-sighted, pe- people just seem very short-sighted about this because I just don't, I don't think, I don't see how it's a good idea for us all to be exposing ourselves willy-nilly once or twice a year to again this cardiovascular virus um where we don't we don't know very much about it yet and you know like with polio we didn't see we saw the worst of it like like a decade later after people's first initial infections that's when the worst of the paralysis began um so i just think that i think there's a really and I think that people have a very, like, I hear people say all the time, like, oh, you know, I got COVID, but I had a pretty mild case, but, like, I'm fine now. But I don't really trust people's assessment of whether or not they're okay or not. Because something I've learned working in healthcare is people have a real interesting way of being able to rationalize things going wrong in their body. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I'm hearing people say, like, oh, you know, like, yeah, I caught COVID and I lost my sense of st- smell and I never, it's, I, I can't really smell the same as I used to, but you know, I'm fine. I mean, like, you know, walking around the house, my heart rate, you know, shoots up to the one thirties, but you, you know, other than that, like, I'm fine. I'm fine. Mm-hmm. We're all fine. Right. Um, and, and I, we're seeing studies that are saying that we're seeing brain scans where it's looking like we're having atrophy and damage to the brain that's consistent with that, which might look like Alzheimer's, which makes sense to me because... Yeah, I saw the study you know, today about how people, over, older, older people who've gotten COVID are much at a much higher risk of developing Alzheimer's now. People are developing Alzheimer's at, at a faster rate post-pandemic. Right. And my concern is that are we going to start seeing a wave of cardiovascular dementia, like early onset cardiovascular dementia amongst millennials or possibly Gen Z or any of like the generations of kids that we plan on exposing to this virus over and over again. And it, it would make sense. I'm not, you know, I'm not going to try to damage my credibility by claiming to know what the future holds. But what I will say is that it would make sense if we start seeing more cases of early onset dementia because, you know, you know when you, you smell something and it brings you back to a place in your past because, you know, our memory and sense of smell, there is a connection there. Mm-hmm, um, 
And so also one of the earliest um, signs of Alzheimer's is a, um, you know, reduced ability to be able to smell. Like an impaired sense of smell is one Mm -hmm. of the earliest. um, And, you know, having also worked in a memory care background, that terrifies me. And I think it should be Mm -hmm. terrifying a lot more people. And I'm not trying to be like a fear monger, but I also think um, there needs to be more risk assessment being done. Um, Yeah, and I think that's the weakest part of someone like Vinay Prasad's argument, which is that, you know, if, if, if there's no long COVID, right. and if there are no, like, long effects of COVID, which, again, is something that is very difficult. Like, we're, we're just learning. We're all figuring this out now on the go. So it's right. easy to say we don't have that much concrete data. I mean, there is some data. I don't want to downplay what we do have. But we don't have as much concrete data as we do at this point about what, COVID, what the vaccines do and don't do. Mm-hmm. Therefore, you know, it's, it's, it's very rational to say the risk assessment changes – for various groups of low-risk people and might militate against certain kinds of the public policy interventions that have been proposed, like mandatory vaccine for young boys who are going to college. Okay. But that only all of that only hangs together if you think the risk of getting COVID multiple times is lower than the risk of taking a vaccine multiple times, and we are only now figuring out what the risk of catching COVID multiple times is. And there is also this, I think, there's a real public pressure not to talk about one's symptoms because there is, and I said this to Dr. Prasad, women in particular are getting kind of laughed off the stage as like histrionics for mm-hmm. trying to listen to their bodies and decide whether or not they are feeling differently post-COVID. I feel this too. And as someone with a platform, I'm very uncomfortable with saying one way or the other, you know, I feel like my cardiovascular stamina hasn't been as good since I got covid Right. Just like I felt uncomfortable saying, I feel like my cardiovascular stamina hasn't been as good since I got the vaccine, which was also right. true. <laughs> we got the booster because right. I didn't want to be anti-vax or discourage people from being a booster when I from getting a booster when I can't medically prove that that was an issue. And I also right. don't want to be histrionic and pretend that I have long COVID if I don't, even if it's just that I'm out of shape and I'm 37 now. You know, like I don't. <laughs> right. So it's, it, I don't. And I, don't I do know. notice you hold that balance and I appreciate that. Yeah. I mean, like, not everybody does, and I don't always get it right, but it, it is difficult because it's difficult. Every, every, everyone's in a place of not knowing, and there are people who can exploit that self-censorship. Not self-censorship isn't the right word, but the, the, the caution with which people mm-hmm. wade into these waters. And if you're the really knowing person, if you're the affirmative person, if you're the assertive person that says, no, 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 there's this new study that shows that actually risk of myocarditis in boys this age are really high, so they shouldn't get the vaccine. There is a certain comfort in leaning into someone who seems really sure. And a certain comfort in saying, you know what, I probably don't have something wrong with me. I'm probably fine and it's psychosomatic. Because like you say, we all want to believe we're okay. Right. And and I, I personally don't know what to do with that. I'm like trying to consume these studies. I like but it's it's it would be a full time job being a COVID reporter. Oh, right. Oh. I, and I totally understand. I, I also understand. It feels like people are talking about it less. I feel like because it seems like at, just at the mention of it, people's eyes kind of gla- glaze over at the word COVID. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Um, but I think just like what one more thing I just want to get off my chest. Sure. Is that I remember being um, really disappointed. This was um, one of the two Christmases. I don't work in the hospital anymore. I ended up quitting. It was, um, 
it ended up being too much. But one of the, one of the Christmases that I was working, I just remember I was working night shifts at the hospital and going on Twitter and seeing, um, you know, a lot of like people who I respect and, you know, whose politics I do respect and who I respect as people in general, um, you know, packed in bars and stuff while I was like in the hospital bagging COVID patients' bodies. And meanwhile, a lot Mm. of these leftists were saying that people who were having outrage about people's cavalier attitude towards COVID were, it was reflective of this individualistic attitude, which I think is crazy because to me, um, it feels like people's priority of, people's like sense of almost entitlement to be able to, you know, go to bars while we have this cardiovascular virus again raging through our society, like possibly, especially when it's surging, possibly infecting people who are kind of there to force to make ends meet. Uh, I. Yeah. No, I, uh, I hear what you're saying. I do think that in the in the earlier days, and maybe today, because I did see right. an article about cases being up or hospitalizations rather being up, especially saw something about five zero to five months old now coming into the high risk group in terms of hospitalizations. Uh-huh. But you know, earlier the, one of the arguments I think that was really compelling for masking and for even some degree of uh, mandated vaccination. Don't at me. Uh, right. Was the that we are all relying on these public health services and we shouldn't burden the system. So even if you personally want to take on the risk, we obviously aren't going to let you just die in the street because you said you wanted to not get vaccinated. So you, you're, you know, you're getting very sick still comes at a cost to other people because there are limited healthcare resources. As hospitalizations went down and Omicron was a milder version of the virus, I think that, argument kind of lost some steam for some folks and i do think that yeah go ahead see the thing is though i kept hearing this omicron was mild thing omicron was mild thing but my experience because i the first wave of omicron was the last surge that i worked Uh, my experience with omicron was it was not more mild we actually had more codes that wave than any other code and i mean it was more Mm -hmm. we had more like it was less respiratory, like we had less people on ventilators, less people needing like high demand of oxygen, but a lot of cardiovascular events, people, like we are having a code every night and we are a very small hospital, so that was a big deal. Mm. Um, so I, you know, I know people, I just don't, I think the word mild really gets me because I don't, you know, mild is relative. I mean, if it's, you know what I mean? Like mild yeah. um, can be mild compared to what? Like mild yeah. compared to something deadly is still deadly, if that makes sense. Um, yeah. But um, I'm trying not to talk in circles. Um. <laughs> no, you're, you're, you're great. And look, I, even if it's a little impressionistic, I do think that it's important. What you're saying here is important. Your perspective is important. And, you know, I, this is what, like, look, I could ask you a question like, well, do you think that we should have um, vac- mask mandates, vaccine mandates? And that becomes right. a different kind of conversation. And I, you know, like I asked Walker Brumskin, I'm sorry, um, 
Walker. Walker Bumpskin is the guy I went to college with, and I don't know why right. I'm doing this right now. Hey, <laughs> Walker <that's> Bragman. Okay. <laughs> um, Walker Bragman uh, this. And, you know, he said, yes, I do think there should still be the mandates. And I think that some part of the argument, uh, the audience then checks him out as a consequence of that, even though I think a lot of the things he's saying about how we should be behaving, even in the absence of mandates, is still really mm-hmm. valuable. And I have less of a strong stance in terms of, like, what we should be doing um, or, like, what the government should be mandating. Mm-hmm. Um, no, I'm not... I, you know, I'm more concerned about, you know, what we should be doing to protect each other. Because, you know, we're not invincible. And there's, you know, there's a finite amount of people on this earth. Um, and uh, I really want, I really want us to see, I really want to see us resist, hashtag resist in general. But how are we going to do that if, like, you know, the people who are most likely to resist, who are being affected by COVID disproportionately, you know, uh, working class people, brown and black people, if those people are being taken out in huge numbers or being disabled in huge numbers, mm-hmm. that certainly, you know, that waters down the amount of power we have to hashtag resist. Yeah, part of me thinks that if we got Biden to commit to like providing health care for everyone who was COVID damaged, we would have very different COVID policy because he wouldn't want to pay for it. Do you know what I mean? Like part of the current policy is contingent on the reality that in America, everyone's going to be on their own for treatment and long-term care anyway. So the government can really wash its hands of it. And how would its public policy today be different if it knew it had to pay the cost for the consequences? Right. And I I love to hear you talk about it because I have less, I have less of a, um, a ground to talk about policy, I feel. Um, But, um, yeah, I just wanted to share my thoughts as uh, someone who's, like, observed the life cycle of this virus from onset to end, like, over and over again for two years. Well, I really do appreciate you calling in, Andrew, and thank you for all of the work that you've been doing. I'm sorry it's been so hard and that we've been making it harder for you. Um, but thank, thank you, and I hope you do call again and give us continued updates about how things are going and, and what your perception is from the inside. All right, I appreciate you. You take care, okay? You too. Keep the faith, Andrew. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. All right, Mark, unmute yourself and let us know what's on your mind. Great. Wow. Thank you, uh, Brianna. I appreciate you taking my call. Um, of course. I want to give Andrew just a, a, a quick uh, uh, thumbs up of solidarity and, and uh, let them know that uh, I personally never eat indoors uh, anymore. Uh, I, I wear uh, my mask and I, I don't actually anticipate in the foreseeable future ever being unmasked indoors in public. And I don't understand why we don't clean the air the way we clean the water. A cholera used to be a huge fucking issue and now it's not mm-hmm. because we clean the mm-hmm. water, right? Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. Uh, that's not what I called to, call to, but I just wanted to let Andrew know they're not alone. Um, yeah. Thank you for that. That's appreciated. I'm sure. Um, Dan, I really wanted to let you know, I guess I really appreciate your voice and the tone you set in the conversations. I've really super uh, enjoyed all the recent episodes about uh, strikes and, and, and union organizing. And, you know, it's, it's this whole discussion we're having on the left about like, what does working class solidarity look like is something that has been heavy on my mind. And whether 
whether we're doing it right or not. I'm a, a union member and a, a union organizer and, and, and got caught mm. up with Ron as MPP grift and did political organizing for a year or two. Mm. But I feel like those of us on the left so often when we were talking about our pet issues, and I suspect it's because we're so used to doing it on our own, what we end up having a lot of the time are, are unorganizing conversations. When we talk about with our comrades about tactics that we think that we don't prefer or that we think are less successful, mm-hmm. it feels like a lot of our conversations are just about why your tactic won't work, about mm-hmm. why your thing is not the right way forward. Mm-hmm. And I find that so troubling because I feel like it reduces any any real social change has always been the result of a multi-pronged approach mm-hmm. and and i feel intrinsically in my bones that organizing is always the answer you know to, to paraphrase the song there's nothing left for us to do but organize and fight like i just mm-hmm. feel so much that we on the left need to change the way we talk about things and i don't don't really have an answer um, for it, but I super appreciate your tone because I think your tone tends to be very measured and reasonable and you have conversations and you're willing to entertain questions that you don't necessarily agree with. So, so super appreciate that and, and your, your voice here. Well, well, thank you. That's, that's very humbling. And I, you know, it's obviously nice to feel like I'm doing you know something right as I kind of feel my way around in the dark here. Um, but thank you for all of your real actual organizing work that you've been doing, even if it's been derailed and fits and starts by, you know, things like, you know, the what happened over at MPP. But I, I really appreciate that your to- your tone seems to be to try and try again and not to, not to feel like, well, that one disappointing uh, episode uh, is endemic of our chances writ large or, or is reflective of our chances writ, writ large. So thank you. And thank you for calling in. Yeah. I think I, I, I'm glad to be able to call in. I'm glad to be able to talk. I guess I want to say one more quick thing. And I know there's a long sure. line and it's not a thing I want to say so much as a conversation. I guess I'd like to hear, and it was about the general strike. Mm-hmm. Um, we've had lots of talks about that. And I got into political organizing because I've long been a general strike proponent. Um, but I would often, for a decade, I've, I've heard complaints like, we can't really do that. And like in my union contract, sympathy strikes are illegal. I cannot strike in sympathy uh, for, with you, for example. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But, but here in Seattle, uh, uh, the teachers recently struck and, and we, we had delayed start of school. And what I can do as a, as a person, as an individual is when I, and what I did do is when I saw a strike line, when I saw picketers, I stopped my car and I wrote a cardboard sign and I put on my hard hat and I went and I walked with them for an hour mm-hmm. and I raised mm-hmm. my fist and I chanted the chants and anyone who's got time, like honking your horn, that's great. And, and boosting them online that's also great but if you've got 10 minutes if you've got an hour and you see people who are out there fighting for fair wages and conditions like i feel like we've lost solidarity in america that we forget that it's about our common interests and when i would stop my car and and march with the teachers it's 
It's because they deserve fair pay and conditions. And I know that because I deserve fair pay and conditions. Mm -hmm. The railroad workers deserve time off because I deserve time off. That is all of our interest. And we, we need to learn to support each other in those interests, right? And it's not just, hey, my way is mutual aid or my way is electoralism or my way is this, that, or the other. I got involved in electoral uh, uh, political organizing not because I thought electoralism was the answer. In fact, I think that politicians just codify what the society has already decided. But I feel so strongly in organizing that, that I guess as I look around the broad spectrum, it's like I can talk to the shop floor. I can talk to the thousand people in my hiring hall who haven't paid their dues yet and joined. But who out there is learning to walk the streets and knock on doors and talk to everyday people about their issues? That's people running campaigns. And if we want to make a general strike happen, it's got to look different. It's got to be regular people taking direct action. It's got to be us working together and organizing and figuring out how we can get boots on the ground 24-7. How big of a circle do we need to support that and, and pick up kids from daycare and make meals and run people to and from the site and coordinate the schedules? Because I don't think a general strike will happen through work anymore. It's got to happen through us, we the people. And uh... Yeah, I think that's right. And to the extent that the earlier caller was talking about you know, solidarity across platforms, I think that the real value would be to help to coordinate things like that, that and advocate for things like that. Because, you know, I talked a little bit about on today's episode about um, helping to grow strike funds and hopefully the people who are embedded in unions are able to use that money to help facilitate some of the stuff that you're describing. But also, you know, it's very obvious to me that there are support systems things that could be helpful that I haven't even begun to contemplate. And so people putting their heads together and people who have experience in these matters being resourced um, to implement what they already know to do is so important. Um, and even you just saying that right there, cracked a little piece of my brain open and said, oh yeah, like that is, those are the kinds of things that we need to be supporting and funding and facilitating. And I would love it if there were, an umbrella organization. I would love it if all of the money that was given to Black Lives Matter or all of the money that was collected by some of these campaigns to nowhere by Act Blue were being directed toward those kind of solidarity campaigns. You know, but we'll, yeah. we'll, we'll see. Like, we'll, <laughs> we'll, we'll see what we can do. Absolutely. I, I, you know, we, uh, uh, Margaret Elizabeth, who is the chair of the Washington Green Party, uh, told me, that, you know, a lot of amateurs often talk about strategy and professionals talk about logistics. And I think we should all think about that. Like mm. it's, it's about getting the structures and systems in place. We need to logistically support our goals. And that's only going to happen by working together and helping each other uh, because they've got the money and we've only got the power of the people. Right. So we got to, yeah. we got to work together. Um, like, thank you. I'm like, going to jump like off. Mark. All right. Thank you, Mark. Keep the faith. Super appreciate you. I, Good I night. appreciate you right back. Good night. All right, David, you might be our last caller as we're coming up on two hours. How are you doing? I'm doing great. It's been a long time since I've called in, but I'm glad to be back. Glad to I know. I missed, your, you I missed your voice. Let me know what's on your <laughs> mind. Well, um, 
I have been working on, I moved recently, um, working at a, a bigger hospital and it just kind of, the fact that the, well, one, the um, Andrew and the Mark, the last caller are kind of like, they touched on all the stuff that I even kind of wanted to talk about. Like one, I work at a hospital currently that's not unionized, but it's surrounded by unions. And so when I'm in conversation with people there, I point out the fact that, you know, the, all the benefits that we have here at the hospital I'm working at is because the hospital is surrounded by unions and everybody seems to get that. But mm. yet nobody wants to really talk about unions because they don't want to, they feel like they have a good thing here. So they don't want to mess that up. So I'm still running into the same issue that I was running in with the hospital that was in a more red area as far as like, how do you get people to want to participate when they still think about in the back of their head, I got bills mm. to pay, I got things to worry about, I, I have a limited amount of time to handle things, I, I have a limited amount of energy and money to handle things. So, I mean, that's kind of what's been bouncing around my head. I mean, I want to talk about so many other different things, but um, like, so one of the callers earlier, I wanted to ask you, are you, do you think that we as Americans are ready for the MMT debate? Because it's really difficult to understand for, I mean, for somebody like myself, but I, I feel like I get it because it's like, you know, the government just spends money into existence and then taxes it out of existence. But when you look at it that way, I feel like it kind of turns some people off because they're like, well, then then why do I pay taxes? Mm. Well, because we have to control the amount of money that's in the mm -hmm. system, right? Am I, am I, does that make sense? Yeah, so I am of the mind that we have to have it because what ends up happening mm -hmm. is that someone runs for office like a Bernie Sanders and it's like this unspoken thing that's hanging in the air as he's talking about all of his policy proposals and it, it gets you caught up in arguments that aren't true and don't make sense about like pay fors and stuff with respect to Medicare for all. And I understand why in 2016 and maybe even in 2020, there was a strategic choice to not get into it. Like it felt too much to do all of that during an election cycle, but now it's not an election cycle. So I think that people have to start laying the foundation that makes it easier for candidates or public figures down the line to be able to speak with a greater ease and shorthand about this stuff. Republicans didn't just invent trickle down economics and the next day everybody knew what that meant. They campaigned to make that a publicly available phrase, like a publicly accessible phrase. By talking about it incessantly in the media, people writing all of these articles, people with big brains who seem knowledgeable inserting it into the discourse. And if we have folks like, you know, squad members and Bernie Sanders or whatever, who are the most prominent leftists that we have, reluctant to say true things about how the economy really works, then what expectation can we possibly have that we're ever going to get past this learning point where Bernie, in the context of like a presidential debate, has to get into the complexities of MMT? No, we have to get to a point where there's a similar kind of shorthand that Republicans have managed to create with perverse, untrue notions like trickle-down economics or the free hand, invisible hand of the market and stuff like that. So it's very important that we figure out ways to condense these very broad topics down to the almost sound bites that people can really kind of internalize. Okay, I can, I think I can yeah. work with that. Okay, so another question I have. Um, I was, there were these two TikTokers that I was following. Um, both of them are talking about, you know, electoral politics versus third parties and stuff like that. And um, they got into an argument between the two of them about um, harm reduction. 
And after I did like just a short little bit of reading on it, I decided kind of quickly which one I agreed with, which person I agreed with. And I was wondering, what is your take on harm reduction? So, I mean, so obviously like it's this oftentimes associated with incrementalist uh, approach Mm -hmm. that says, you know, you got to take a win where you can. There are real people living real lives who are suffering and to the extent that compromising and not like holding the line on some, you know, broader leftist goal enables you to put food in somebody's mouths or pay for the funeral services of their loved one. Those things matter and you got to do it. Obviously from an ethical perspective, I completely appreciate that approach. And it's why I think so many of us for so long have, been wary of the idea of accelerationism, have been wary of the idea of shooting the hostage, have been wary of the idea of, say, um, encouraging someone like Bernie Sanders to say, yeah, fuck it, we're going to shut down the government over um, not not voting for the mansion side deal that's going to, you know, enable the um, Mountain Valley Pipeline, which is the equivalent of 19 million more cars on the road. Or let's say shoot um kill the kill the american rescue plan over 15 dollar minimum wage because oh no we're not going to get covid relief now people are going to die because they can't get shots and armed my frustration with that the problem with, with that is that i think that if you are always 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 every single time going to take the harm reduction approach you are dooming yourselves to in the aggregate in the longer term creating a lot more harm for all of the people whose um you know, whose struggles get grandfathered in to the status quo. So there's always new stuff that comes down the pike. There's new Trumps and new Muslim bans and, you know, transphobia and all the things that are happening that are obviously legitimate evils. But if it's always, well, we got to bend the knee because we got to get COVID vaccines and we got to bend the knee because Trump is the worst threat ever, um, what you're ultimately going to do is enable a rightward ratcheting effect. We're always going to get more and more conservative candidates because Democrats are never willing to lose at any instance and are always willing to take the compromise position. Conservatives, you see, are willing to lose a cycle. They're willing to be mansions and cinemas and be reviled by the public. They're, they're, they're willing to you know, shoot the hostage. And the argument for why they're willing to do that is not because they're more brave. I think it's true that if you're already against government, you don't want the government to do anything, then having a government shutdown or having a bill not pass, it's no skin off your back. And I think that a lot of the leftists in Congress genuinely want good things for people and genuinely think that they're making the right choice when they say, Ugh, okay, fine, I don't want to have this dumb you know, oil permitting part of it, you know, or I, I don't want this other bad corporate giveaway to happen, but at very least I'm getting something for the people of my district. I think there's a good faith reason to want to take that approach. I just think it's wrong strategically in the long run. And it's going to hurt. Mm-hmm. It's going to hurt. And real people are going to hurt. And I wouldn't want that blood on my hands. I'm not a politician. You know, I can't tell people what to do. But I think just analytically, strategically, it's obviously the case that always doing harm reduction is going to cause more harm in the long run. I agree. I thought that's exactly what you would say. What convinced me on the topic was that, um, during the two the, the, the discussion, um, one of the, the the creators was mentioning all the things that harm that he thought were harm reduction that actually had a benefit, and each one that he mentioned were things like the earned income top, child tax mm-hmm. credit, which 
all the other ones that he mentioned were things that expired or that were temporary and went away. And I was like, well, then that by definition isn't necessarily a reduction in Mm -hmm. harm. You just kick the can Mm -hmm. down the road, which kind of is what turned me off to the idea of harm reduction and and made me think that maybe we, if harm reduction is the goal as opposed to the uh, consolation prize, then I think you're doing it wrong. It's kind of the way to think. It's how I've been thinking about it. Yeah, look, maybe I think that's a really interesting point. Maybe if someone came out with a litmus test of when harm reduction is okay, maybe I could accept it if it were permanent, if it were structural, you know, if it, if it were some of these things that aren't just, I'm going to have child poverty for six months, <laughs> you know, or I'm going to, I'm going to, you know, performatively, I mean, I don't want to say perform. I don't know for a fact that the eviction moratorium was allowed by Democrats because uh, the eviction moratorium protest rather was allowed because they knew that the Supreme Court was going to overturn it anyway. But, you know, if that is truly what happened, you know, then I wouldn't count performative measures like that. I wouldn't, you know. I think that there's a world where I could be more open to certain kinds of harm reduction, especially if the harm reduced is significant, big, permanent, blah, blah, blah. But the way that it is adopted broadly as a strategy that's going to be used 100% of the time, I just can't get behind that. And I need some recognition from these elected officials about what the consequences of that approach are. And, th- and this is basically, this was, you know, the fundamental root of the conversation I had with Chomsky now almost two years ago. Exactly. I think that was October 10th that that interview happened. You know, I, the, the, the whole point was, I, you know, I'm not denying the value of harm reduction. I'm not denying the potential of harm that Trump can cause and, and the harm that he has caused. But what I'm asking you to reckon with, I want you to demonstrate to me that you are accounting for the harm that comes from always kicking the can, uh, can down the road. And too often when people hear that, all they hear is, oh, I don't care about the people. I don't care about harm reduction. And it's like, no, 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 no. I could be convinced that you are making a, a, an accurate accounting right now, but not if you refuse to even acknowledge what the long-term consequences are of doing this incrementalist approach. That makes a lot of sense. That makes a lot of sense. So, well, one other question mm-hmm. I wanted to, to, to touch on before I push that forward is, um, so we spend a lot of time on the left, like one of the earlier callers was mentioning, you guys got a conversation about not, the goal shouldn't be to cut, to consolidate all left media into one umbrella, mm-hmm. but to have these many different voices. So, and that's kind of the spirit of the left. The left is always um, fact-checking itself, I mean, or, or rather comparing itself and, and arguing because to not do that means you kind of devolve into conservatism. Ultimately, you stop being progressive if you're not asking, is this what we should be doing? So are there any strategies that you have personally or that you think about or that you refer to to keep yourself from getting into, you know, pissing matches and always making sure? Because you always seem like you're pushing the conversation forward. And like, if ever I do that if ever I get into a conversation it's part of the reason I don't tweet that much because I never feel like what I'm going to say is going to push the conversation forward so do you have strategies for people to think about and consider that will always keep them in the mindset of how can I develop this conversation further as opposed to just slinging mud well one thing I liked what the last caller said uh, about how so much of the left conversation about organizing is about shooting down other people's strategies and that a, a let many flower blo- flowers bloom approach is much better. So even if I 
might have some questions about one strategy, you know, I think it might not be effective as effective as another. I really do try not to get in the way. So even with electoralism, I know that some people say, fuck electoralism, you know, don't give to those campaigns, don't participate. You know, I can say what I personally will choose to do with my time and money. But, you know, you know, I have candidates on, like if they, if they think this is the best approach and them running for office doesn't hurt me in any way, it doesn't hurt the other kinds of things I want to do in any way, look, good luck to you. You know, obviously the world is better if you replace the neoliberal and you're easier to push or you can use your platform for, to, you know, to advance our strategies. You know, that's obviously a net good, even if I think that revolution's not going to come that through that way alone. So I just make, I, I think that people should say affirmative things that they do want and pursue what they want to do with or without the consensus of the entire group. And instead of trying to derail other people's plans. And that's why, and I, I very rarely name names, but I've already said this about him in particular, so I'll go ahead and repeat it. That is why I think the, the reaction of Owen Higgins in particular during the whole force the vote thing, movement, I should say, not thing, was so um, disappointing to me. Because it's one thing to say, I don't think this is a good strategy. It's another thing to openly mock and have a hostile attitude toward people who are out in the cold day on a January trying to fight for um, healthcare rights in a country where we have none, you know, and if you find yourself on that side of the line, if you find yourself mocking um, Medicare for all protesters, because you didn't believe in a strategy, I don't know. I think that's pretty much as low as it can get. I agree. I have to agree. I think that brings me to my very last point and then maybe you can get to somebody else. But um. Like you mentioned about the protesters, the help, the Medicare for all protesters, to bring it back to what um, I think Andrew was their name yeah. was talking about. I, you know, I, I I work in the ICU and I can very much empathize with everything that they were saying about people just kind of feeling like they've given up and and, and it's it, a bit of it is the posture of our government. I mean, by you, Biden was on. Um, uh, I can't remember what he was on, but he was recorded the other day saying that, you know, oh, we've dealt, we've dealt with the pandemic. The mm. pandemic's over. We just have a COVID mm-hmm. problem. And it's like, I, I was immediately infuriated by that. I had to go to one of my nursing friend groups to kind of vent for a second. Like, you, you, mm-hmm. unflappable ass. Like, how can you say that there's people still dying and still struggling with this? And I mentioned in the, the chat a little while ago, like, like I'm, I have patients that have come in in the ICU who work out daily like this lady that i'm thinking of she walked daily 30 minutes a day which is like the bare minimum of what we tell people to do just to be healthy she was doing that and then some and she still was admitted to my unit completely healthy as far as except for the fact that she had covid and her heart rate was in the 30s to 40s that's what we call a perkinji rate that means the 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 last fibers of the heart are all that's really keeping your heart going. And it's like, it's insanity that one virus is this effective, that it affects so many different parts of the body, but it's also like, there's so much we don't know about it. So I, and in the same breath, I can say, I too am exhausted with masking and, and I had my own kind of backwards thinking about it. Cause I feel like if we're not all doing it, then it's like, I, I, I do want to throw my hands in the air and be like, well, if we're not all going to do masks, then, why, why, why am I, you know, being the one person in Costco wearing a mask <laughs> and, and like, <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Yeah, I've, I've had that I feeling. Try my best to mm-hmm. Right. I, I do my best to try and do it. And I, why? But 
anyway, my point was that without some version or ideal that of Medicare for all to kind of really bring us together and be like, if we don't remove the profit motive from our healthcare system, it's impossible for us to have any means by which to actually get people on the same page because people are going to be completely and utterly uh, um, wary of a system that knows that it just wants to make money off of you. So am I buying these masks personally and wearing these masks personally just to, you know, make some, you know, politician who bought stock in masking Mm. companies? Like, is that why Mm -hmm. I'm doing this or is this really going to help? So until we can remove that profit motive, I don't see how we will have a a country that actually, you know, has that sense of solidarity Mm -hmm. and, and works together to stop a pandemic. That's such a good point. That so much of the skepticism around some of these interventions is because whether or not the particular intervention is a good or bad idea, there's always a possibility that it's motivated by something that's not the people's interest. And it's funny because mm-hmm. Robbie and I have this conversation sometimes. He, he hates it when people say X thing is bad because the Koch brothers supported it. Because for him, he thinks, well, it may or may not be bad, but just the fact that it's backed by the Koch brothers isn't enough to dislike it. Now, me personally, very skeptical of anything the Koch brothers like, but I can take it, you know, I think that, <laughs> that, you know, Robbie, you know, my response might be, well, okay, hey, Robbie, like, if you want the thing to, to live and die on its own, then, you know, the fact that it's being funded by this person, it's, it's ultimately hurting your argument for why you think blah, blah, blah is the solution to the problem. And it's the same, you know, there's mm-hmm. an underlying skepticism that comes naturally when anything is funded by, by corporate interests. And I do think that we would live in a world where we felt more solidarity if that weren't the case. I think that's a really, really interesting point. Okay. Well, I thank you for your time today. One last thing. Um, I can't know I'm just saying that. <laughs> I am <laughs> been practicing or rather trying to practice more writing and trying to get into more discussion posts and do long form uh, discussions on this. Like one of my uh, ultimate goals is to become more of, a, I guess, an expert in unionizing and organizing and doing that, I guess, first in the nursing space, because like uh, Mark was mentioning, like we we used to have a very, and one of the people you um, interviewed, was it DJ Vassad, mm. I think, um, talked about how unions used to, you know, do the solidarity strikes. And, and not only that, but they, there were all these other ways that they would get, that, that they'd get involved where like you would have the nurses union come down and, and provide water to the teachers union who's striking at the moment. And it's like, I want to get more into that, learn more about that kind of stuff and get into those uh, discussion posts and things of that nature, writing papers and that kind of stuff. So that, that is where I will be. So whenever you see me in the chat, that's hopefully what I'm going to be able to bring up and bring to you. Oh, I love that. Um, I love that. To the I tweeted, I retweeted it a couple of days ago, maybe closer to a week ago, but there was some uh, outlet that was looking for writers, like staff writers. Mm-hmm. Um, and I tweeted it saying, I know there's so many people at, on Colin and, and in, in the, the, the Patreon chats over at Bad Faith who express an interest. And so if that's of an interest, it shouldn't be too long ago in my timeline because I haven't been tweeting very much outside of just bad faith posting. So I hope I hope that all of you avail yourselves of all those writing opportunities. And I know that um, Current Affairs is always looking for folks to write. And to the extent that I still have uh, any end of the intercept, I'm happy to facilitate and to give advice uh, for folks who have pitches. So do let me know. And I'm so glad okay. to hear that you're on that on that track, David. 
do my best to, to keep you informed and, and up to date. And also let us know, because your audience is very interested to always help you with what you do. So let us know what production you need help with. And we you know, will, I, I mean, know, I know sure that that's true, but I need to get, I know that you guys are so helpful. And I know that you're probably tired of me whining because you're like, I, I said I would help you, girl. Like, <laughs> shut up. But like, I need to get my act together enough. You know how when your house is so messy, no one can help you clean it? Like at a certain point, you got to get your ducks enough order that someone can make sense of the chaos. And, you know. And it's hard. It's hard to accept help, too, because, like, I mean, the way I would suggest maybe people do it is since you I've known the concern for me, if I were in your position, would be not being able to pay these people. But you i'm sure there's got to be some way no 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 i can do it i can no i can do it everyone's gonna get paid who helps and i can do it i just need to it's like payroll for instance i hate Um, payroll i have one employee (laughs) i hate doing payroll like the prospect of having to set that up for another person makes me want to rip my hair out so it's not it's not the actual payment of the person it's that i am administratively deficient I am a complete dullard with respect to anything that requires any actual administration. So I'm in the market (laughs) for a a life coach right now. So I I, I feel you. I totally feel you. I'm like, oh, it's almost October. I need to make sure I pay my taxes because I got a six month extension. You heard like that's that's where I am in my life. So it's not about you guys. You guys are great. It's me. It's not you. It's me. Well, thank you, Bree. I appreciate you. Thank you. I appreciate you. I appreciate all of you. I saw someone in the chat talking about, oh, she's only going to do two hours a day. You guys need to stop. I would love to do another hour because I see some of my faves coming up. It's Adrian. I see you, Lysol. I see you, Jonathan. I saw the Jonathan versus Jonathan debate. We just actually just set that up for real and have that discussion out on the pod soon because I want to hear from both of you and I want want you to be able to talk to each other. Like, I see all of you. I, I see you. I hate neoliberal tears. I see all of you. And I want to talk to all of you. But I have to set some boundaries. I, just, I was in Philly all weekend, and I need to get myself together so I can be presentable and um, articulate tomorrow morning on Rising. But we will be talking again soon. Thursday is so close. Uh, and until then, take care of yourselves and keep the faith, my friends. in the tall grass wish i had a pilot and a podcast wish i had a strong donkey that can haul ass and travel with portable speakers playing boss scats wish i had a million dollars i wish i had a million albums i wish i had a million problems that way i couldn't pinpoint all one million outcomes i wish i found a genie lamp i wish them girls gave me them sugar like beanie man yeah i wish i was a comedian a late night sitcom syndicated on tv land this well had water in it these kids are stealing all my pennies focused on my wealth you can help me wish but i would rather wish for help it's like it's like i wish i wish that every time we love and it feels just like this i wish i wish that every time we do it it feels just like this i wish i wish that every time we love and it feels just like this it feels just like this it feels 
Wish I had a time machine. Wish I had a better rhyming scheme. Wish that I could speak to giants after climbing up a green stalk that grew from my lime bean. I wish that I could spread my wings. I wish that I had seven limbs. Yeah, that way I'd hold on to everything and laugh.